What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 493. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we got another one of our Western roundups looking back at the genuinely eccentric character of Judge Roy Bean. A lot of movies and books have inserted him into their narrative, sometimes as the star, sometimes as a secondary character. None of them have really made an effort to actually tell the story correctly, but it's part of the charm of the character of Judge Roy Bean. But with me for this conversation, I've got our Western uh, authority at this point, artist, musician, and writer David Lambert. We got from the, the days of like the golden age of Hollywood up to kind of the rough and rowdy days of uh, Hollywood in the early 70s. We got a wide range of movies to talk about today, but David, as always, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you. I am glad to be here. Yeah, man. Well, since we last recorded, you started exposing me to some of the, the groovy tunes that you've been doing. We've never talked about your music on the podcast before. Uh, before we talk about your art or about Roy Bean or any of these movies, give people a heads up about what you do on that front. Oh, it's a collaboration with my friend. Um, he's more he's more of the uh, uh, technical side. I'm more of the, you know, I write the lyrics and you know, kind of um, direct the feeling of, of them, you know, uh, it, I don't know, it's a, it's, a hard, it's a hard process to completely lay out, but basically he does all the work and then, then I take the credit and say I wrote the songs, so. <laughs> Do I have your permission to play one of your tunes on the episode? Oh, um, yeah, 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 I guess you could, but they're not, um, these are not finished versions but yeah for sure well I'll, I'll let you pick the sample and then i will gladly insert it just so people can hear anytime someone says hey i wrote a song i'd like you to listen to it. like oh boy what am i about to listen i know i know but i, I started know. playing i was like holy shit this is actually like really good Yeah. 
In the pale morning I hear a whisper from the crowd They open up my eyelids Put their fingers in my mouth Gary drag my body To the table where it rests Last night in his wisdom In my chest Lay me on bed Well, I'm well. You know, I only try to collaborate with the uh, you know with talented people. So, um, was that you know? So game, I'm, game I'm attracts with, game, as they say. Yes, yeah, I guess so. But <laughs> it actually just came about because I, I had a friend who uh, is uh, you know he's uh, his, his the music that he's done with his own band and stuff is very. Um, it sounds very like sixties era, like rock and, and all that, but we both sort of, um, we both, uh, are huge fans of like Marty Robbins and the sons of the pioneers and, and that kind of like singing cowboy music. And so, uh, we just bonded over that and I'm really more of a guy that is into older blues music, older country music, older folk music and stuff like that. So I could kind of bring a lot of that stuff to him, but he's just so technically good and classically trained that he just picked it up immediately. And, well, um, well, one so of these days just, I'm going to lure you or woo you into doing a music and Westerns episode, because I feel like sons of the pioneers and things like that, like, like Western music has evolved and changed so much over the years, whether you're talking about spaghetti Western music or like stuff from like in like the searchers or whatever the case might be. And I feel like there is a great episode to be built around singing cowboys. And I feel like that it's a, uh, we are destined to tackle that topic at some point. I think that is that I think that might be good. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that'd, that'd be good listening. I, I, I think that would be fun. Yeah. Also just when I'm cutting these episodes together, part of the fun of them is inserting clips, but it's way more fun when I get to insert music. And for what it's a weird thing where iTunes and Google play music and Stitcher radio, they're very chill and hands off when it comes to sampling scenes and music and podcasts. Whereas YouTube tends to be very aggressive. So like with YouTube, you gotta be very careful about any media that you use because you can just get a copyright strike and get your channel terminated. 
It's part of the fun of doing the podcast is having a little bit more wiggle room when it comes to sampling things. So I feel like a, a singing cowboys or just a Western music episode would just give me so many little, so many more toys to play with while putting the episode together. That is true. That is true. Yeah, that that could be fun. That could be good. Very cool. Well, anything going on in terms of your art as of late? Uh, I, I've been trying to do my best to share your stuff on my Savage Comics profile anytime I see you posting your latest creation on Twitter. But it seems like at a, at a bare minimum, you are your uh, your scam of convincing beautiful girls to pose naked for you continues to uh, yield very interesting fruit. <laughs> um, yeah, then that's true. Like I said, like I said in the last one, I've slowed down a little bit. I'm. I'm, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of things have changed. So I, I don't have the same ability to just work on art, like, uh, you know, eight hours a day, like I, like I used to. Um, but, uh, so I'm, you know, trying to get my work sold and, uh, and all that. And hopefully I'll, I'll get things worked out to where I can, uh, continue the, at, at a similar pace as I was before. Um, but you know, things are getting go going well. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm selling a decent amount of work. So that's a good thing to focus on for a bit. Um, well, I love the one that you posted on January 14th on Twitter, you know, a slightly more curvy, uh, kind of heavier build, but I, I've got absolutely no problems with that. But I, I thought that one had just a, a ton of great detail, but I love it. When you look at your profile, it's like, Amadeus and like weird, like skinny Western dudes. And then suddenly just astonishingly hot <laughs> girls. But yeah, There's a lot of interesting variety on your Twitter profile. Yeah. Yeah. Recently I've been doing, I've been doing smaller pieces, uh, with like a ballpoint pen. So that was like a ballpoint pen sketch. Um, and those I'm, I'm just kind of like sneaking in on like my lunch breaks and stuff at work. So, um, so that's why they're, 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 they're smaller, they're less elaborate, but they're just more just, the figure or you know something something to, to that effect less of the you know weird you know uh symbolist stuff that i usually do so um you know so that, that's just what i've been doing now just so i can get still still you know uh keep uh, flexing that the artistic muscle but they're not they're not as ambitious i guess well but then again you posted one on january 20th that's pretty ambitious where you've got you know some girls on the bed with a couple of fish and like a little shark and then you got you know it, it almost looks like um a strange like cardinal's pleasure palace because you got like the big cross or the crucifix on the bed and then all these exotic animals and beautiful girls and yeah something out of like paolo sorrentino's the new pope or some some weird vision that one of the characters might have oh yeah that that one that piece is a couple months old i i just hadn't posted that to twitter um actually that might be closer to a year old now but i i hadn't posted that to twitter um, but that one, that piece has already been sold like months and months ago. So that, that is an older piece, but with Twitter, I wasn't updating it for so long. And so now I can kind of go to my back catalog and just post stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that sort of weird, uh, mix of, um, eroticism and, and alchemy and Christian mysticism is the thing that I was just <laughs> doing, which I don't know what what it actually means or what, why I'm doing it. <laughs> I mean, I feel so, like the, the mean people get so worked up about meanings, but I feel like uh, whoever buys it and puts it on their wall, it, it's up for them to figure that out. I, I feel it's just for you to create some really evocative imagery to stimulate people's imagination and then uh, let the historians figure out the rest. Definitely. Definitely. And then also, you know, um, I know since maybe it'll probably be a shorter episode today. So 
There's actually my favorite story uh, from working for the coroner. I don't know if we want to do this little diversion here because I think it it's such a weird story that oh, it bring it on, the weird, weirder the better. With the surrealist sort of aspect of some of the movies today, um, so as mentioned in the other podcasts, I've worked for the coroner doing um, forensic sketches of unidentified victims. So if you didn't have fingerprints or dental records on file, I would do a composite sketch of the person, and then they would try to identify them. So, um, uh, so this happened a few years ago, but, um, basically there was this homeless man and he got hit by a train. Okay. So it's already, you know, it's a coroner story, so it's already horrible. Um, but it was just his head. So he basically just leaned his head forward and got hit by a train. And so we didn't, we didn't know if he had, uh, if he was just standing there and didn't, it was just so drunk he didn't realize it, or if that was his form of suicide or whatever. It's very sad, but uh, so anyway, so th- they go, they find the body, and uh, you know, obviously the head is missing. So you, you know, I, I, so many yards away, they find his skull where it where it had just flown off, and <laughs> and hit the ground right. And it was just sort of this, sort of like this, like star of just like bone dust. Like it just hit the ground and just shattered, right? Um, but in all these different shards of his skull, the thing that they could they they could not find any skin or flesh. So they were very confusing. Like what what actually happened here, you know? Um, so they go back and they they look at. They look at the guy's body, and then they kind of they realize what had happened. So the train hit his head at such a speed that it dislocated his skull from his neck, and the skin on the side of his face tore in a clean like a like a just like a clean rip. So it's like peeling an orange, pretty much. So the <laughs> skull flew out. With no flesh or anything on it. And when they looked in the body down his neck hole, the skin from his head was like a hoodie. (laughs) Still attached to to his neck. And he fell uh, by the train and it created a vacuum down his neck hole and and sucked all that skin into his neck. Wow. So they could pull it out like a hoodie, like like a Halloween mask of this guy's face. And then they realized... That that's what had happened. The speed of the train had just dislocated his neck and just made a clean sort of uh, incision uh, through his skin that launched his. It's skull like when out. somebody so, hits a baseball so hard that they just knock the stuffing right out of it, and you leave the uh, the skin right there at the uh, home plate. Yeah, yeah. So that so of all the the coroner stories, I think that is my. Uh, it's the most it's the weirdest one it's the weirdest one that just that kind of thing could happen it's the thing that you if you saw in a movie you'd just be like that's bullshit but well as someone who loves westerns and likes putting pen to paper from time to time something tells me that could easily make it into something i mean i feel like westerns obviously involve trains and all sorts of drunken crazy buffoonery that would be an (laughs) ideal scene to uh to capture on the big screen 
You know, I have considered it. I have considered it. The only thing is that the trains back then probably didn't move fast enough uh, to do something. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. really the speed, but you know what? That's okay. You know, we could. I, I, I think that. I think that 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 might be all right. I've considered it. Don't, don't believe me. I have. But. Well, beautiful. Well, now that we're talking about westerns, let's start working our way toward this character of Roy Bean. Historically, we know. A decent amount about him, and it's, I mean, from my understanding, from talking to you before we started recording, is that he's a genuinely odd, strange person, and these were these were wild days filled with wild men, and it seems like, but even by those standards, he was pretty, pretty eccentric for the period. So for people like that who have never heard of Roy Bean, historically, or in fiction, or in film, give us the primer, help, help us ease into the pool of discussing Judge Roy Bean. Yeah, he is uh, – even before he declared himself the justice of the peace, the, the, the law west of the Pecos, he had lived a very uh, wild, storied life. Um, he was born in Kentucky in 1825. His real name was Fantley Roy Bean, which was uh, kind of a hick version of Fauntleroy. Oh, nice. Gotcha. <laughs> so he's actually Fantley – P-H-A-N-T-L-Y space Roy Bean Jr. So there there were two Fantley Roys out there. Um, he went out to Mexico with his brother Sam to fight in the Mexican War. And they were kind of staying in Mexico. And they were known as Los Frijoles there uh, because of their last name. And... Um, he ends up getting into a shooting match with a Mexican bandit who had wanted to kill a gringo. So after he killed that guy, he he goes to San Diego to see his other brother, Joshua Bean. And Joshua was actually the first mayor of San Diego. Um, and then, you know, Joshua gets killed by possibly by Joaquin Marietta, the famous Mexican Robin Hood. Um, and then so uh, Roy leaves there. No, actually, Roy in San Diego gets in a shooting match with a Scotsman. They decide to ride horses and shoot at each other. <laughs> and, Why not? Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, the, the Scotsman was drunk and he's like bragging about how good he was at shooting. And then so Roy was also drunk and he was bragging too. And they're like, well, let's have a shooting match. And Roy said, well, let's shoot at each other on horseback. So that's what they decided to do. Uh, so he ends up shooting the Scotsman in the, in the leg. And killing his horse, and then he gets locked up. But Roy Bean was really good with the ladies, and so all these Mexican women came and would hide, like, uh, digging tools and stuff and the tamales and stuff so that he could escape. So from there, he, he escapes, um, and uh, I think he goes to – I think he goes uh, – I, I don't know. Uh, he, I think he goes to Chihuahua. Anyway, there's, like, a young girl – She's betrothed to this Mexican officer, but Bean starts courting her. So eventually Bean and the officer uh, have a conflict, and they decide to duel it out. Bean kills the Mexican officer. The Mexican officer's friend take him. They put him on a horse. They put a noose around his neck, and they leave him there, which is really stupid. It's like something in a bad movie, but they leave him there. Uh, because the horse, you know, is eventually going to walk away and then Bean will be hanged, right? So so that happens, but the rope stretches. 
so Bean is like kind of hanging there, but he's still somehow surviving. And anyway, yeah, it's the girl almost that, like in uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, and then also like I think in the Holmes Man and a few other things. So uh, the girl comes out. She, uh, the girl that he had been fighting for, finds him and cuts him down. From then on, Bean had a stiff neck and like a rope burn and all that. Um, and yeah, he he had that for the rest of his life. Um, so then he tries to become like a supplier to the Confederacy because they'd they'd rode into uh, New Mexico and and then they were they were retreating and he was he so he was kind of going with them to try to make money off them. He goes to San Antonio. He becomes a cattle rustler. Uh, he keeps trying to pull different scams. He would he would buy uh, cow milk cows. Um, he'd milk them. He wouldn't feed them anything and they'd eventually stop giving milk. And then he would tell the person he bought the cows from like, these cows are, they're faulty. They're not, they're, they're not giving any milk. I want my money back. And so he'd get his money back and he would <laughs> pull so, this scam. And so the, the net buy, profit was he had a few buckets of milk. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he'd buy cows, he'd milk them as much as he could. He'd never feed them. And then he'd get his money back. And he was just doing scams like that. And even, even after that, he was getting caught watering down the milk. He was just, he was just a shady character all around. You know, he would steal from his brother's uh, he, he just, he was like, uh, I know how we talked about Wyatt Earp being a con man, uh, in, in a previous episode, but, uh, he, it was way worse, <laughs> way shadier, uh, in that regard. Um, so anyway, he, um, he married like a, a, a teenage girl, uh, reports are either 15 to 18. He'd beat her all the time, uh, had a bunch of kids with her. They lived. They were like lived in poverty in this settlement named Beanville. Um, but he was such a shitty guy that uh, a store owner's wife actually said, "I will buy all your possessions if you just leave." <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, but Roy was worried that once he left, they'd change the name of the town from Beanville. So they had to make a promise that they were going <laughs> to keep the name Beanville. So, <laughs> so they did. And then so Roy leaves. Um, so then he goes uh, to a town of uh, Vinegaroon, which is west of the Pecos. And there was a lot of rail workers and stuff, a lot of, a lot of hard cases working on the railroad. And it became an issue for the Texas Rangers. They were just hard because there was no law around. So they uh, elected Roy as the justice of the peace. So he took his tent saloon and turned it into a saloon slash courtroom where he would try cases. One of the first things that he did as a justice of the peace, he went over to a Jewish competitor's saloon and started shooting the place up. <laughs> so, you know, it was a, you know, it's the kind of law that you want, right? Um, well, and it's then, like that so, line that Ned Beatty says in Life and Times of George Moore Bean is like, well, they were wild men in those days. Like, it's just like that's like his excuse for it's like all forms of destructive and horrible behavior. There were wild men in those days. And yeah, that, that sums yeah. it up. Yeah, pretty much. So he relied on a single law book, which was the Revised Statutes of Texas from 1879. Now, this was in the 1890s when he was doing this. So, uh, uh, no, no, it was actually in the 1880s when he was doing this. So the law book was already out of date. He would get new law books. They'd send them in 
and he would use them as kindling. That was the only one he wanted. The only the 1879 version of the of the statutes of Texas. So um, he wouldn't allow hung juries. He wouldn't allow appeals. Um, when he would have uh, recesses uh, during the court, he expected everyone to buy alcohol and drinks. Um, there was one famous case where an Irishman named Patty O'Rourke, you know, the most stereotypical Irishman name I think I've ever heard in my life, uh, he had killed a Chinese uh, worker. And so he got hauled into to the judge's uh, courtroom. And surrounding the courtroom, which was like, you know, uh, just a huge group of these Irishmen waiting for the judge's verdict. And if the judge had basically found him guilty, uh, they would have, they were threatening to lynch the judge. So Judge Rabin, he looks in his law book and he says, you know, there, it's very clear. The law says that you're not supposed to kill your fellow man, but I don't see anything in here about killing a Chinaman. And then he dismissed the case. So, so that gives you an idea of, you know, if you were a minority in that era, the kind of justice you would get, especially from uh, someone like Judge Roy Bean. So um, uh, he, he later moved to the town of Langtree, Texas. Now, uh, the movies always kind of make it like uh, he named Langtree after the actress Lily Langtree. And he was obsessed with her and had pictures of her in his bar and uh, and all that. It was actually named after George Langtree, who was an engineer for the railroad. So it's just sort of one of those things where just by coincidence. Um, but the movies always kind of make it like he renamed the town uh, after Lily Langtree, which is not the case. Um, uh, but uh, he he didn't have a jailhouse. So if somebody couldn't pay their fines, he would just chain them up to a tree. Um <laughs> And that's actually not uncommon. There, most most Western towns, like small towns, would not have a jailhouse. So they would either dig a hole in the ground, and you just they just throw you in it, and have a big, uh, you know, rock or something over the top, or they would oftentimes chain you to a tree, or sometimes you'd have to just live with the sheriff or marshal in his house, you know, like chained up, and that was always a, you know, that was just always an annoyance. And there's actually a story of a lawman in new mexico and he had to stay in his house because he had to watch this this criminal but uh he really wanted to go uh, he really wanted to go to this dance that was going on so he was like well man i don't know and so he sends the criminal off he's like go ahead you're free and as the criminal's running away he just shoots him in the back kills him <laughs> and then goes to the dance. roy bean didn't do that that's a different lawman in new yeah. mexico but that gives you the idea of why lawmen often no, it's called the wild west for a reason and yeah <laughs> yeah well they kind of if you were a troublemaker in a town they kind of just wanted you to go away it wasn't really like we're going to enforce the law you know you they just like get out of here yeah. like we don't want you here. and and only if it came to having to you know if the guy refused to leave only then would you be like all right i gotta actually do my job um but yeah, it's like it's not the it's not the strap on your six gun, you know, try to get justice sort of thing. It's just like, yeah, let's just kind of make it, you know, we're we're trying to do our own thing here. It's already hard enough, you know. So let's just get this guy out of here. Um so uh um he would he would oftentimes find people whatever they had in their pockets. So 
<laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever they could pay, uh, that's what he would find them for whatever their crimes were. Um, Which definitely pops up were, in the uh, life and times of Judge Roy Bean. Oh, it pops up, yeah, in, in almost all, on all, almost all the movies. And there was an example of a, of a, um, a, a worker. He fell off of a bridge, and they found a concealed weapon on him. And and Roy Bean uh, fined the corpse forty dollars for carrying a concealed weapon because that was how much money was on the body. So so he would just do stuff. He would be fining bodies. Uh, but he would just do stuff like that all the time. There was a time where there was a bunch of workers that a bridge collapsed and, um, and he, he was working actually for the coroner at that time, uh, too. He would do these coroner's inquests and they'd pay him $5 for each uh, person or each dead body or whatever. So he went out on a mule. He found these 10 guys. Seven of them were dead. Three of them were injured. And he went back into town because he didn't have any way of bringing the three injured guys back. And didn't want to make another trip. So he said, oh, they're all dead. And uh, turned out the three guys lived. You know, <laughs> So he just, he just didn't care. And he would use his office to, um, to like, try to shut down rival saloons. Um, he, would, he would arrest like, rival saloon owners for like, disturbing the peace or whatever. And then he would charge them, like, you got to buy 20 bottles of beer from my saloon. And- <laughs> All, all, all these kinds of things. Um, he would marry people, uh, and the thing he would say after he would marry them is, "May God have mercy on your souls." <laughs> and he, he was just a really, yeah, he was just a really kind of weird, eccentric character, real shady. Um, there, there are so many just wild stories that if you actually look it up, he actually did have a bear, a pet bear, but that wasn't wild in that time actually people in that town other people had pet bears in that town too so well to this day having weird pets in texas is still very much the norm apparently there are more tigers in the state of texas as pets than there are in the wild in the country of india like oh that is (laughs) yeah (laughs) so texans have a proud tradition of owning really terrifying dangerous animals as exotic pets yeah 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 uh, and it's actually funny that it's like a firsthand account of people owning bears and you got, I mean, if you can find it, you got to look it up because the way that the guy talks about this here bar, he, he wasn't mean, but he bit my hand and I didn't like him much. And it's like, well, why'd you have a fucking bear? You know, <laughs> anyway, um, there was a time where there was a one-eyed Mexican sheep herder named Otero and, uh, some guy just killed him, of course. And he basically just fell in the street not far away from uh, the judge's saloon. And the judge didn't have him buried because he was attracting crowds. So he was like, oh, just keep him there because it was attracting more people to his saloon. They just left a body just rotting in the street. And and uh, there's firsthand account of like talking about how the ants were just eating the, the guy's insides out and everything because he didn't whatever whatever way he could make money. He, he you know, he wanted to. But um, I mean, we always think about the the westerns in the early '70s as being so gross and so like you know kind of rancid and kind of wallowing in squalor. But it sounds as if even in like the great heyday of the nastiest westerns ever made in that era, they didn't really even come close to just how fucked up things could really get. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's 
yeah, you just get into certain like subhuman medieval times, basically. And <laughs> not that long ago, we're talking about per- a period of time that was like 140 years ago. That's a couple of handshakes. That's like your grandfather's grandfather. Well, yeah, Roy Bean kind of typifies the thing that I that that I love most about the West is just how gritty and squalid and just the that survivor's mentality. But at the same time. The, the aura of pretensions of being Victorian or following the law or, you know what I mean? Using, using people's, uh, like their, their standards for your own benefit, but you've got a, you got rotting corpses around and you got people just shooting each other. And so it's just kind of the, that kind of dichotomy I always find fascinating of putting on airs of being a proper judge, uh, while you're just letting this horrible things go on. So, and and Judge Roy Bean, he lost elections. Like he would lose an election. At one time, he he was running for he, he it was the re-election cycle, and he he got a hundred more votes than there were actually people in the town. Of so course. he lost. Yeah, so he lost the election because they when they realized it. But he just decided he wasn't going to give up his law book, and he just kept trying cases west of the Pecos. He didn't didn't, it didn't even matter to him. He's like, I, I don't care. So, uh, but there are, you know, but for all how terrible he was beating his wife and, you know, being a bigot and every other horrible thing he did, I guess he would use a lot of his money to help the poor around there. He'd buy medicine for them. He made sure the schoolhouses had fresh uh, firewood during the winter uh, for free. So he had a softer side to him. Um, But, uh, you know, but he was still a really shady character and Anyway, he dies in 1903 after a long bender, um, but he died peacefully, peacefully in bed, and that gives you a little bit of an idea of who Judge Roy Bean was. <laughs> wow! I mean, yeah. my favorite parts of doing these episodes with you is when I get the little, I guess the the history lesson because you're you're a natural born storyteller, so I just love to sit back and listen to these fucked up stories because you know it's like when I get together with my old buddies from college and we're sharing tales about you know. All the silly things that we used to do, like the, the more savage the story, the more disgusting the story, the better. And we just laugh and laugh and laugh. But it's like, you know, people think that they're savages today, but the people in the Wild West were truly savages. And I, I just never get tired of hearing about all this crazy shit that went down. And it's just, uh, yeah, when people think about old Westerns, I guess like the, the mistake is people think of like Hollywood Golden Age Westerns and how they seem kind of clean and kind of sanitary. But all you got to do is pick a few scabs and, and look below the surface a little bit and you just find these absolutely foul, depraved tales of just e- evil and, and suffering. But for whatever reason, I find them endlessly fascinating. American pioneer spirit on the march. First came the cattlemen and with them, Roy Bean, a self-appointed judge who took the law into his own hands. Hey! Cool. You and me's friends. I done what I had to and you think it was wrong. But if it was my own son come over here with a warrant, he'd have to be first in the draw. I aim to be. Unless I get it in the back before I get out of here. Then into his stronghold moved the homesteaders, only to ignite an era of hatred and jealousy, terror and violence. This here's a big country. Yeah, but it ain't big enough for cattlemen and homesteaders, and it never will be. Now clear out of here. All right, Dean. We're going. 
We're going back to build our fences. If you do, you better build coffins along with them. Well, let's shift gears to the first flick on our to-do list, which I know from our correspondence you mentioned is one of your favorite Westerns from the period. But this is actually the very first time ever in the history of the podcast that we're going to be discussing the films of William Wyler. And it's funny how when I first started getting into movies in the 90s, there were certain directors from the Golden Age that were placed on a pedestal, worshipped as gods. And now they might as well be from the same period as Judge Roy Bean in terms of a young film enthusiast totally neglecting and ignoring their movies. But once upon a time, William Wyler was a huge deal. I mean, movies like Best Years of Our Lives and Ben-Hur and Roman Holiday and Dead End. I mean, there's tons and tons of flicks that he made. And now if you ask, I, I think nine out of ten young film enthusiasts probably couldn't name a single movie by William Wyler. But I'd actually never seen The Westerner prior to getting prepared for this episode. So I'm always thrilled to see something for the first time. But for people out there who have not seen The Westerner or heard of William Wyler, what is the premise of this particular take on Judge Roy Bean? Uh, well, The Westerner, it was made in 1940. William Wyler had only – he'd never done a, a Western before outside of like two reelers in the silent era. Um and the thing is, like in the 30s, the Western kind of went uh, to the wayside. There wasn't a lot being made until 1939 where it kind of blew up again. I mean, outside, outside of like the B-movie Westerns and stuff, but not, there wasn't a lot of prestigious Westerns um, made in the 30s. Um, and so with Stagecoach, Jesse James, Destry Rides Again, Dodge City – uh, the Western kind of just blew up again. And so um, Samuel Goldwyn, um, who had who used to have Gary Cooper on contract, but he considered Gary Cooper a Western star, and he said, I don't make Westerns, you know. He'd only made um, one other Western, which was, uh, I've never seen it, but it's like a, a really weird name, The Winning of, um, some girl's name, I don't know, but it was, uh, the winning of Barbara Worth. And that was actually Gary Cooper's first featured, um, film role. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he was working but, with like Joseph von Sternberg and people like that and stuff like Morocco. I mean, he was a full blown leading man, but he'd been working with a lot of really cool directors. I mean, he'd worked with goddamn Ernst Lubitsch. I mean, he was a real deal movie star. Oh yeah. And the, and the thing is like at this time, he would have been the guy that actually typified, the character of a Westerner, which is, you know, the title of the movie is kind of weird because the Westerner sort of is like, seems like this really kind of like iconic uh, feel like, you know, it, it it's a, uh, it's weird to call this movie the Westerner, but you know, fair, fair enough. But, um, uh, but basically the plot is sort of, it's, it's sort of like if you took the plot of Shane but with the villain, you made the villain into Judge Roy Bean and just had more of a um, gallows humor, literally, uh, and comedic overtone to it. Uh, Speaking of gallows, it's funny how you mentioned, like during your summary of Judge Roy Bean, one thing we should have also mentioned is that for a guy who's so famous for hanging people in movies, 
he apparently only actually sentenced two people to hang in real life. Yeah, and one person escaped. Yeah, I should have yeah. mentioned that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. he has this notorious reputation for hanging everybody, but that's totally concoction of the flicks. And it works great in the movies, but it, it, that's like of all the horrible, evil things that he was doing, he actually wasn't lynching that many people. <laughs> no, no. And he was, uh, in some cases, he was a little bit more. Um, lenient than uh, other other towns other other places i mean the thing is no one was ever legally hanged for horse thievery n at least not in my research but a town might just lynch someone for doing it you know what i mean um but uh but roy bean he would just let people go uh if they just returned the horse you know so he's like well fine he'd find him or whatever but he wouldn't he wouldn't he wasn't he wasn't like some hang happy guy. And actually, I, I, I would like to do the research and find out exactly what the people did that he was uh, that he actually did sentence to hang because I'm not sure. Um, but but uh, but yeah, so this is a, it's, this is just like a really fascinating movie because the it's almost subverting the genre before the genre had even really become that codified as to what a Western should be. Agreed. You know? Like it's not, I mean the stage, obviously stagecoach did a great job in kind of defining the Western for that period, but it's not like there'd been 50 classic beloved, huge hit Westerns to be subverted. Cause this is only one year after stagecoach and already it's playing with a lot of the genre tropes. Yeah, and that's the thing, and I think that's the I think that is the what William Wyler was was going for. He only ever made really two westerns. The the next one was um, the Big Country, um, but uh, so he's not he's not coming at it from like a John Ford angle really of um, you know trying to I guess distill the western to its essence like My Darling Clementine or something to that effect, but. Uh, he's just uh, he's just doing what he what what he finds interesting. What William Wyler he gets, I think he gets somewhat disrespected now just because people don't like Ben Hur. You know, it's long and boring. And I whatever. mean, if people he, think Ben Hur is boring. I'll just say, look, put in that goddamn chariot race that uh, Yakima Kanut worked on, and it is it's it, it's just a fascinating time capsule yeah, where you see a, a literal cast of thousands. And stunts on an epic scale, and it's, it's as, as as exhilarating a sequence as you will find from any movie from any era. So I think it's unfair for people to bash. I get that like, when people think of like masterpiece theater and old fashioned cinema, William Wyler's kind of the heavyweight champion of that. But my grandfather fought in World War II, wouldn't watch movies about combat in World War II. However, his favorite movie about World War II was the best years of our lives, which is a brilliant yeah. job of capturing how difficult it was for soldiers adjusting to life when they came home. And then Roman Holiday, it'll charm its way right up your leg. Or if you want to see Bogey playing a bad guy, see The Desperate Hours, or the Dead End, is, I mean, it's Dead End's a little stagey, but it's still, once again, Bogey doing, doing his thing. He, he has a lot of good movies to his name. Do I think he's up there with... John Ford or Billy Wilder or Howard Hawks or some of these other guys that I really intensely love, I, I don't place him on that same level. But he's a major, major filmmaker. But it's as natural as the turning of the earth that filmmakers and novelists and musicians, they just they fade into the ashes of time. And William Wyler definitely is one of those guys. But it's just incredible to me, like 25 years after I really got bitten by the movie Bug, just how much his reputation is kind of disintegrated <laughs> in that interim. <laughs> 
sometimes I wonder if it's just like because he's not. I mean, I haven't seen every Wyler movie. I'm no expert, but yeah, I've seen seven of his movies. That, I feel that he's not necessarily like a fetishist of filmmaking fetishist, and I think that's like what a, people like a latch Hitchcock, on like a Hitchcock to. kind of character. Yeah, yeah, they latch on to the things where they can kind of pick out. Oh, he's going on his old themes, or you know, he, and it's just you know, a John Ford's always going to do. Th- these certain things or that your Hitchcock's going to do these things and Sam Fuller's going to do these and, Yeah. Sam Fuller. Yeah. yeah those guys out where I, I don't know if there's a lot of like Weiler's personality or direct interests that are, that are coming through. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's why, but I, I also just think it's just that Ben Hur. I think, I just think people are, People don't like Ben Hur, and I think that's one of the things. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, it's Funny Girl that I can't get into. Funny Girl, I saw it. Where did I see, did I see it? Maybe the Sunset Five in L.A. They, they, it was re-released, pristinely, perfectly restored. When I soon after I moved out to L.A., yeah, I was either working as a summer intern or I just gotten there after college. So I saw Funny Girl under ideal circumstances, but I feel like there's a giant, massive audience out there that regards Funny Girl as just like the acme of the musical. But I, it's just not it's not my thing. So, but maybe Funny Girl once again, it just feels old fashioned to a lot of people. Like at a time where Hollywood was going the route of Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch, here you have Funny Girl, which is a two and a half hour kind of old fashioned old fashioned musical. Oh, you know, I've never seen it. So um, there you go. But, but what he does, like with with this movie, is um, the. I mean, it's beautifully photographed by Greg Toland a year before Citizen Kane. Yeah. Um, and it is so just visually, it's stunning. The cinematography. And the composition. I mean, Greg Tolan at this time was doing like The Grapes of Wrath and Long Voyage Home. I mean, he was doing some of the best looking movies ever. And obviously, Citizen Kane is one of the towering achievements when it comes to photography. But it's not just Citizen Kane. It's, it's a handful of movies that you put them all side by side. And you're like, oh, my God, like you, this is one of the great directors of photography who ever lived. Yeah. And he also did uh, Best Years of Our Lives, I believe. And Yep. And that movie is very subdued. It, it doesn't have like the big stylized, uh, you know, uh, he was dead two years later. Movie. Yeah. He died in yeah. 1948. But, um, so the movie looks great. And I think in terms of visuals, I, I would put it next to, uh, my darling Clementine in, in terms of black and white Westerns. And in fact, I would say that the production design costumes, all those things, I would put, put it above my darling Clementine. The production design, I think is great. It was nominated for an Academy award that town was built for the movie and they actually lived, the crew lived in that town. So it was a functional town. And when you watch it, it doesn't look like a backlot set, perfect, perfect street of, you know, just these building, you know, these false Like in the Bud Whitaker movie that we're going to be discussing. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it looks functional. You have little, great little details of just like, in the background, you just have like some Chinese writing and you see like a kind of a Chinese band in the doorway or whatever, but there's no big reference to it or anything like that. It's just these little details like that. And the costumes, you know, they're not like perfect, 100% historical, but they're really good. And they actually give you a real good feel of what people would look like in that day. So there's a lot of great historical detail. Now, one of the things about the movie is it does definitely doesn't follow the history of Roy Bean. Um, 
but it tells you at the beginning all these characters are fictional outside of Roy Bean and Lily Langtree. So up front, it's not trying to trick you. Um, one thing is Texas never had homesteaders. So the, so the, so the, the entire con- premise is just throw it right out the window. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much, yeah. Texas was already incorporated. It was already a state before the Homestead Act. So it wasn't like there was like homesteading land or whatever. These are conflicts that were in other areas and they kind of just moved it over to Texas because that's where Roy Bean was. Um, so that's so that's one aspect of it that's completely ahistorical. Um, it, was, uh, it, the, the, it was based on a story by Stuart Lake. And Stuart Lake is the guy who made Wyatt Earp famous. He's the one that wrote front, the, the Frontier Marshal, the book, um, and made Wyatt Earp a, a, a celebrity. And then it had all these other writers, one of which was um, Burnett, W, what is it, W.R. Burnett, I think. Yeah, who's a major powerhouse writer. I mean, he worked like on like Little Caesar and all kinds of crazy, High Sierra, Great Escape. I mean, it, when it comes to legendary writers of like tough guy cinema from like the 30s to the 60s wr burnett is such a fucking stud and i've seen so many movies that he's played a hand in the writing and i never get tired of watching his movies but my, my favorite probably little caesar where he wrote the novel and uh, i am a big fan well also he wrote saint johnson which became law and order which is one of my favorite westerns gotcha uh, yeah so and 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 tonally it has the same sort of feel as this uh which is just that dark humor the absurdity of the west uh i mean they're tonally i think that law and order and the westerner are very similar and law and order was adapted by john houston who we'll get into later but uh i mean also uh, with wr burnett we should mention he also contributed the dialogue to harrod ox's scarface which obviously got remade by brian de palma so for any scarface out fans out there wr burnett he he has a hand in all that yeah yeah and so and these movies capture a thing that, and I'm not, and I don't want to disrespect John Ford, but I feel that the, the John Ford's westerns, in the way that he, I feel he compartmentalizes scenes. So in a John Ford western, you're going to get your sad scene, you're going to get your nostalgic scene, your funny uh, drunken bar scene, you're going to get your wacky fight or whatever, yeah, and then you know, and you're going to get your action scene. And, and that's fine, that's great, but I like the Westerns and a lot of the older Westerns before Stagecoach or around that, before John Ford became the guy who said what the Western was. I like it when they just sort of mix it all up, you know, when they mix the chocolate and the peanut butter. You know? <laughs> I hear you. So I like it where you could have a disturbing scene of a man being hanged but then there's a humor about it because he was trying to shoot a man and he shot a cow instead so he gets hanged for shooting a cow <laughs> and judge and roy bean says well you you should have had a better aim yeah he says guy. it's your bad luck you missed him that's the trouble with you sod busters you can't shoot straight shad may the lord yeah. have mercy on your soul <laughs> I mean, I and, and it's ridiculous but it captures something about the west like i that i think when you read literature that was written at the time whether it's mark twain's rough in it or just people's own like diary entries or whatever from that era or just police gazette articles or 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 etchings or whatever there's just this sort of weird feeling of like the cheapness of life in the west and the humor in it i think there was i think that i don't know if it was just so miserable 
that they just had to bring the humor out. Almost. Yeah, where it's just like you might die from gangrene if you get a fucking splinter. So everybody starts yeah. to uh, be a little blasé. But yeah, this movie has so many great lines that capture that flavor you're talking about perfectly. Like at one point when Judge Roy Bean says, Mr. Harden, it's my duty to inform you that the larceny of an equine is a capital offense punishable by death. But you can rest assured that in this court, a horse thief always gets a fair trial before he's hung. I mean, that's like almost like a word for word line that John Milius would use decades later yeah definitely and 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 it's almost the spirit of it is almost like someone who works for the coroner's office and tells a disgusting sad uh hilarious story about a homeless man getting his head knocked off <laughs> <laughs> it's just that sort of that sort of feeling that when you're confronted with like this bleakness and death every day these things become absurdist and everyone is probably drinking all the time because the water is not pure so you gotta either drink tea or beer or or whiskey um, you know, so it just, it, there, there's just a feeling that's captured in the movie that I think that I really relate to. Whereas I think John Ford goes, this is this type of scene. This is this type of scene. This also, is this John type Ford is, he's so mythic and he has like this, like almost like poetic form of visual storytelling. And he's all, he's very much about establishing uh, legends and heroes and things like that, but he's never going to really wallow in the darkness. Like he might give you like a family being slaughtered by command or something like that. But it seems like this movie is a little bit more interested in just showing how filthy their lives were. Like when you see Gary Cooper and Walter Brennan, and we should mention, yeah, Walter Brennan won his third fucking Oscar for this movie. When they just, they pour themselves entire be- like mugs of beer, but full of whiskey, then like wake up in bed next to each other and like, Judge yeah. doesn't know oh. who he is and he's like and then he's like having him like crack his neck back into place but it, these are those are not scenes that you see in John Ford movies John Ford movies are all about like seeing Shirley Temple going to the dance and meeting a nice boy and things like that it's just much more wholesome in a lot of ways this movie's a little bit more mean and nasty yeah and also just uh, I mean I guess a little bit more ambiguous and of course Ford gets more ambiguous as he goes along. The searchers clear, uh, obviously Ethan. Or Ford Edwards. Apache. I mean, Ford Apache is like the the, the yeah. masterpiece of great ambiguity in terms of what the film's trying to say. Yeah, 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 exactly. But in these movies, it's like, like you know that this movie is like Roy Bean. He's a villain, but there's also something that you like about him and respect about him, and he's the most entertaining character, obviously. And, and it's just – and even even the opening crawl or whatever talks about like, oh, it's a testament to his greatness or something very strange to where – I mean, just, great, we know about greatness like George Washington. He had greatness. Yeah. <laughs> Judge Roy Bean, he's a character, but greatness might be the wrong word. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I think it opens with some kind of crawl that says something to that effect. But it's, it's, it's weird when you watch these like movies like 40 – I'd say almost every 40s to 50s Western has an opening crawl, like trying to give you the historical like account of things. And it's like, weren't people so inundated with Westerns, like at least in the 50s to where they would just already have an idea of what's going on? I watched a Western the other night and it was trying to explain what a gunfighter was. It was made in the 50s. And I'm like... Didn't everyone go into the movies already know this? Yeah, like, like this is like, like at, at this time, Bud Bedecker, yeah. Anthony Mann, and a lot of guys were making westerns by the fistful. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were they were up to speed. But yeah, when you talk about like Walter Brennan though being the most interesting character, like every, when I think of Walter Brennan, the first character that always comes to mind is Stumpy and Rio Bravo, where he's being played for laughs and he's hysterical and he has no teeth and he doesn't get around very well. But it's easy to forget 
that he has a bit of an edge to him earlier, like this and my darling Clementine. He's a dark motherfucker, and I, I love. I, I, I guess it's starting with Red Rivers when he really started to get played for last more and more. I guess maybe just Howard Hawks really saw that in him. But Walter Brennan had so many more dimensions as an actor. But apparently, like when people talk about how he won three Oscars, what I learned in preparation for this episode is that it's because he'd kind of rigged. He, inadvertently just due to his popularity with extras he'd kind of rigged the oscars in his favor because back then extras were allowed to vote for the acting categories and Walter Brennan was so popular with the union of film extras and their numbers were so overwhelming anytime he got nominated <laughs> he would win and after he won for the third time they uh, they banned the union from oscar voting <laughs> ever yes, again yes. And we ta- actually talked about that briefly, I think, in the uh, Wyatt Earp episode because he shows up in Law and Order in a really small part. And we talked about how he will show up in these movies, like he'll, he's in The Invisible Man. And he, 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 if you watch these like movies from the, like, the 30s, early 30s, mid 30s, Walter Brennan is probably going to just pop up somewhere. So yeah, he was definitely like a glorified extra in a lot of his early roles. Um, and so, yeah, that is the case. Having said that, he's amazing in this movie. Agreed. And, and uh, I know that uh, Gary – I've, I've read differing things, but I know that at least initially Gary Cooper was like, well, he's got this – he has the showy great role. Like this is going to be his movie. Yeah, it's like John Wayne with Dean Martin and Rio Bravo. He's like, he's got all the good fucking lines. Like what the hell am I going to do? Yeah, and, and, th- and that's true, but, but Cooper is just great in this movie. He's so funny – He's so like his timing is just great. It's subdued. It's subtle, and his chemistry with Walter Brennan is is just every scene is just perfect with them. Like the way they they size each other up when they're drinking, you know, it's just these weird bits of business, you know. Also, just uh, seeing like what a crush Walter Brennan gets on him because he's the only guy who he kind of can relate to at one point when he's trying to convince him to stick around and stay. He's like, yeah, well, you should stick around for a while. We can have fun and talk about Lily Langtree. Like, he's so desperate to have, like, a buddy that he can talk about his favorite subject with. I was like, that is so adorable and pitiful that he just wants to sit around and talk about <laughs> Lily Langtree. <laughs> yeah, and there's just those scenes where he's got the hair and he's like, oh, it looks dark, you know? And and, uh, and Gary Weaver's like, oh, yeah, she uses a lot of shampoo, you know? Oh, you know, it's just like, there's just so many great scenes with them and there are there are great like just bits of business throughout the throughout the movie, um, you know, like the liquor that goes in the bar top and sizzles, you know. Oh, yeah, he says, or, "Don't spill none of that liquor, son. It eats right into the bar." It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't be putting it in your belly <laughs> if it eats right through the wood. But talking about Gary yeah. Cooper, like I remember reading an interview once with Orson Welles, and he was talking about how Akeem Tamirov had this like expression about how like the camera likes some people and the camera doesn't like other people, and he like he talked about how Gary Cooper was one of these these actors that for whatever reason you, you turn the camera on it doesn't matter how you compose the shot or how you frame the shot the camera just loved him his 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 he just commanded your attention he had an incredible sense of presence and movement and anytime he walks on on screen you're like oh my god like that is fucking Gary Cooper he is a total legend and that big reveal of him at the end on stage he truly is one of those great mythic Hollywood golden age actors and even if he doesn't necessarily get all the great you know, kind of chewable lines like Walter Brennan does. He does command your attention every time he steps on screen. Oh yeah. There, there's a story. I can't remember who it was. It might've been Lloyd Bridges working with him on high noon. 
Lloyd Bridge is just acting his ass off and, and he's with Gary Cooper and he's like, he's not doing anything. Like what the, what the hell is going on? And then he goes and, and actually sees like the dailies and goes, Oh yeah, he's doing everything. Like he, <laughs> he's doing everything by not doing anything. Like he, he doesn't need to do much. Gary Cooper, he doesn't need to do much, but this one is great. It just, it just has so much humor and the way he plays it against Brennan. I, I love it. And, and they ended up working together like four more times. So clearly there was something there. Like I think Gary Cooper realized the chemistry and supposedly he always hated the movie. It was weird. Not enough gunfights or whatever. I've read some of that. I read that before I, before I saw the movie. I read that quote. He said, you can't make a Western without a gunfight. And then he, and he like walked off the film and refused to start working on it. But I watched it. There are gunfights, like a lot of gunfights, oh, yeah. and there's violence, sure. and there's like like this giant action set piece where Roy Bean burns all the crops of the homesteaders, and Gary Cooper's trying to you know start like a backburn in order to, and he's like you know has to save a guy's life, he's being dragged behind a horse, and there's tons of action, and of course it ends with a giant fucking shootout. So I don't know what Gary Cooper was talking about. But but then I've also heard other things that like in retrospect he. Gary Cooper almost thought this was a like a um, uh, a quintessential performance of his. There was a now nah, I can't remember it now, so I don't know if I should bring it up. But there was a, there was a, a film where a guy was supposed to do a Gary Cooper impression, and and uh, he asked Gary Cooper. And Gary Cooper said, "Watch the Westerner. Like that's the one to watch." Interesting. So so I don't I don't know. There's you know I, I I don't actually know how he felt about it, but I feel that the fact that he kept working with Walter Brennan. Uh, says that he, I think he realized the quality of the movie. So, um, so yeah, all that stuff with Roy Bean, all that stuff in the town is great. Stuff with the homesteaders isn't as like amazing, but it's not bad. And Weiler still gets a lot of really good business in there um, uh, in terms of gags and stuff. Doris Davenport as the love interest is adorable and her character may, might not be written like amazingly but she's still great i still i still find her very entertaining she only did one movie after this and apparently she was up for the scarlet o'hara role interesting the and that's why goldwyn put her in this um well we got to talk about this ending though because i think it has one of the strangest climaxes that i've ever seen in any western where you have the judge in his rebel uniform and his uh and his saber thrilled to, to have his like all the seats in the house for the Lily Langtree show and of course it's a trap and he and Gary Cooper throw down and they have this big shootout and then they finally say alright let's put our guns away and stand up and draw on each other and you have Judge Robin like collapsing from an, uh, from a, an earlier shot and then Gary Cooper carrying him back, backstage like a baby where Lily Langtree is still in her dressing room like waiting to meet him and it's like because when he says, oh, well, she, she's here, she's she's wanting to meet you. And it's like, oh, this is just more of his bullshitting. Because obviously earlier in the movie, he's amplifying his knowledge or relationship with Lily Langtree in order to buy time so he won't get hanged because he's about to be hanged for a crime he did not commit. But it was just a truly bonkers, deranged. And for a movie that doesn't feel like weird or strange, suddenly we're almost in like John Huston territory in terms of how un unpredictable this final couple minutes turns out to be. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just the, the having the gunfight like in an opera house and all that. It's like he's uh, like Weiler's already subverting the genre, like just just right out the gate, you know, and it's only 1940. So it's a it's a fascinating, just great scene. And, and there's so many other great scenes. And it's like 
like I was saying with Davenport, like the stuff, he never lets it like uh, he never lets the love interest or do, you know derail the movie uh, as with so many classic westerns where they kind of have to shoehorn that in. So even in a scene like where Cooper and Davenport are out like walking in the field or whatever, and it seems like it might be getting too much into that area, just immediately then the field's on fire and it's you know it's almost like something out of Days of Heaven with all the crops burning and. And the Tolan cinematography and the optical effects and stuff, and so it's like it, it, it moves real quick. It never it never just sits too much on one thing, and it is subverting expectation. I think around every turn. So, so I'm, it's like, I'm looking at the credits right now, and I didn't even realize this at the time, but Chill Wills is in this movie as the character yes. Southeast. Yeah. I didn't even recognize him when I saw it. He's the guy with the big, like, black sombrero. Yeah. Gotcha. I, yeah, I always look for those character actors. And uh, Dana Andrews is in it. Like, I think it's his first movie. And, and there's some John Ford dudes. Some some real ugly-looking guys. But, yeah, just the just all the details, all the touches of, like, them in the, in the um, jury room. And, like, Chill Wheels, I think, just walks over the table. And it's just a, it's just a piece of wood on a barrel or something. And... Uh, it's just all, all that, all that detail is just so great. He doesn't like Weiler just puts all these like little things in every scene. So like just really nice touches of, you know, uh, with the homesteaders where she lights the, she lights the, uh, uh, lamp and then Gary Cooper's face just appears out, outside the window or, or when he's getting, has to get a lock of her hair. And then she's kind of in love with him. And she's using the scissors to cut, you know, to cut on the pieces of wood on the fence posts and stuff. So like every, every scene is just really thought out and great. And so I love I, I love the movie. And maybe it's not as moving as uh, uh, Searchers or um, Liberty, Liberty Valance or something like that. It's more of lighthearted fair, but. But I just, in terms of just pure enjoyment, it's one of my favorite ones. And I, and I, I like it a lot more than some of the more quote unquote respectable William Wyler movies. I mean, I'm looking at his IMDb page right now, and people need to remember this guy won Best Director on three separate occasions, which and he's only been beaten by John Ford, who won four. He was nominated twelve times for Best Director. I mean, he's a major, major director. But I think it's that like you put you hit the nail on the head when you said his lack of obvious fixations or his lack of an obvious signature style perhaps has made him fall out of fashion where someone like Nicholas Ray are like, ooh, there's a lot for me to sink my teeth into or Vincent Minnelli, whatever the case might be, but some of these overt stylists, he was just a full-blown industry player, I guess craftsman in a lot of ways, but not an individual stylist. And I, I guess, but he he had the proper approach for his time and era, but if you were to ask me which William Wyler movie would I prefer to watch, like between fucking Funny Girl or The Westerner, give me the, the Westerner in, in, <laughs> any day of the week. Even though obviously Funny Girl was one of like you know, the biggest hits of the 1960s. Well, it's just funny because when you do watch The Westerner, it does feel like it's coming from a unique voice, but it's just it's just its own thing. It's, it's, it's its own movie. It's not like that is his voice for every film that he does. And when you watch the big country, it's almost hard to even, uh, think that it's the same director outside of the fight scene, which this is kind of like almost a test run where they have like, 
a lot of the fight is is shown from far away with the dust and all that. But he really takes it to another level with the big country, the big, the famous fight, you know, in that one. But otherwise, it's just uh, it, it. This feels like it's coming from a, like a very distinct, unique voice, but it just isn't necessarily something that he carries over into every yeah, movie. That he, he follows does. it up with the letter, the little foxes, and Mrs. Miniver. I mean, films that have <laughs> like nothing in common with uh, with this one. So I guess, but for I mean, Hollywood obviously knew at the time that no matter what the film was, no matter what the subject might be, insert William Wyler into the equation and he can give you a movie like Dodsworth, which is a, a very entertaining flick from the, the late 30s. Probably not, not a lot of people seen it, but Walter Houston, he's fantastic in it. So yeah, I th- I'm, I've seen, I haven't seen a ton of William Wyler movies. Like I said, I've seen seven total. Most of them are very solid, if not great, but uh, f- he's just one of those directors where with each passing year seems to become less and less Talked about, so maybe we've struck a, a small blow on on his behalf with this uh, with this celebration of the Westerner. Yeah, and I believe this is on the Criterion Channel. So it is. That's that where I saw it. Yeah, absolutely. Streaming service. Yeah, you can check it out on there. Very happy that it's on there. Uh, I I highly recommend it. I don't know if it would go into my top ten westerns, but it's it's somewhere around there. I think if you're talking late thirties, early forties. It is it's in the mix as one of the best, and it's very tough to be compared favorably to Stagecoach because this is a monumental piece of uh, film history, and you know obviously it was the the Bible that Orson Welles was studying in order to learn film technique for Citizen Kane. But not every film has to be stagecoach. And I feel like, yeah, just late 30s, early 40s, they're just not, they're not a lot of, they're not a lot of Westerns to choose from. And the Westerner, I'm, I'm thrilled that I finally saw it at age 43 because I, I kind of got to save a really good one from that period up until now. I'm going to, I'm going to say, I think I, I think I probably prefer it to stagecoach. Wow. Bull, that's a bold statement. Yeah, like stagecoach for statement. me. Just I get overwhelmed with emotion at the end when you hear like the like the sound of the cavalry like sounding the charge and riding in to save them and they're just there's so many good scenes in there and obviously yeah I mean the, the, just in terms of a, an ensemble cast that ensemble cast is so first rate I just I just love I'll, it I'll I'll have to give it another rewatch you know I've seen it a few times I've seen it many times but I'll have to give it a rewatch I think there's I find a couple lulls in Stagecoach I don't really find many lulls in this one but I also don't want to overhype it. But I think that it's because uh, if I overhype it, it maybe kind of diminishes sort of the fun, kind of small quality of the movie. It is not an epic or anything like that. Yeah, not an but epic, but it's definitely an epic performance of Walter Brennan. And if you're a Walter Brennan fan, and if you're not, like watch more Walter Brennan movies. But it, it is a, it's essential viewing for Walter Brennan fans. Uh, yeah, and I would say if you want to get an idea of other other really good westerns of the era that aren't john ford movies that kind of give you a different view of the west um in some ways a more authentic view of the west even though you know the the whole concept of the movie is wrong but uh i I would say check this one out i reckon it's nice for a feller to live as long as he can even if he's a rabbit what about the snake well snakes is a different thing is he Jesse James? Heck no, sure not, Jesse. He rides with a whole bunch. But sure enough, that Billy Pepper. I met up with him just before I seen you. You're real handy with those guns. 
you learn to shoot like that? My pa taught me. Your pa a lawman? Look, mister, if you're trying to frighten us, you're not doing a very good job. Well, hey, Jiggers, young lady, you're something. You make Belle Star look like a nun. We're not just a mistake anymore. Or are we? Look, Millie, I don't know nothing about being married. Well, I now pronounce your man and wife, stick the ring in a finger, boy, and kiss her. May God have mercy on your soul. Bring in the next door fender. Guns is all I know. Now that's a downright shame. The folks around here sort of look on me as the number one in that line. Here's what you could rightly call a Mexican standoff. All righty, well, let's dig into our next flick. We're going to f- jump ahead 29 years to A Time for Dying now. In the past, we have talked quite a bit about Bud Bedeker on this podcast. Episode 402, uh, Brian Saar and I went into Bud Bedeker and what is known as The Renown Cycle, which is obviously these astonishing films that he made with Randolph Scott, Seven Men From Now, The Tall T, Decision at Sundown, Buchanan Rides Alone, Ride Lonesome, Westbound, and Comanche Station. So I've got nothing but the utmost respect for Bud Bedeker. However, for this last movie... Uh, he went off to Mexico for many years to work on a passion project, and when he came back, he never quite was able to regain or reclaim the heights at which he'd been operating in the late 50s. This movie, Arusa, this documentary, really just it cheated up his funds, it cheated up his life, it just, it just took over the 60s. And so he really, we see here at the time for Diham really struggling to get back into the swing of things, and it seems like he almost did it because... Was it Audie Murphy who'd gotten in a little bit of financial trouble and needed to bang out a movie real quick for like to pay off some guys in Vegas or something, something to that effect? But maybe I should well, let you, maybe I should let you take over. What is the premise for a time for dying? Because I feel like everybody's just got to know in advance. Like I'm going to say some harsh things about this movie, but my my love and affection for Bud Bedeker knows no bounds. But this movie's a bit of a a, a bit of a mess for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I love Bud Bedeker. I love Audie Murphy. Uh, I think Bud Bedeker's first movie was an Audie Murphy movie about the Dalton gang. And uh, it's not as good as any of the renowned uh, films, but it's still very entertaining. Like, you know, and I guess Bud Bedeker said, like, he knew nothing about the West, um, but he, you know, was into bullfighting and stuff. And the studio. Like, nah, yeah, no, you're good, you're good. Yeah, the, I mean, was uh, it the, his first big bullfighting movie that really made a name for him was uh, The Bullfighter and the Lady from 1951. But, yeah, so I guess Audie Murphy hadn't been in a film for a while, and he needed to do something, and and um, he hit up Bud Bedeker. Maybe it wasn't Bedeker's first movie, it was Audie Murphy's first movie. It, one of the, one of their first films. Uh, I, I can get, be getting it twisted around the, the Dalton movie. But uh, anyway... 
uh, he'd worked for them before, and so he was like, yeah, let's let's do something. And uh, this movie is, outside of just knowing that it was kind of cobbled together and very cheap and all that, outside of already knowing that, it's still a baffle. It's a baffling film. <laughs> it's a baffling film in terms of the talent involved behind it because I know that the tall T was shot in only so many days uh, on only so much money. And so I know that Bedeker could handle low budget films on a tight schedule. Um, but this one is just, and, and, and it's the cinematography is by Lucian Ballard. One of the great guys. Yeah. Shot, yeah. Who shot ride the high country, the wild bunch, will penny, um, true grit. Yeah. You, and it's the same, the same year as the wild bunch. <laughs> same year as the wild bunch and true grit. And then you watch this movie and the cinematography is amateurish. The lighting, it, the lighting changes the day, you know, it goes from like day to night. And I mean, obviously it's a schedule issue, but it's like, it's weird that it's just kept in or they're not, they don't, they're not finding solutions to these low budget problems. Now what, what format uh, did you see them? Because what was confusing to me was when I saw it on Amazon, it was in the Academy ratio. But when I looked at by 90 B it was claiming that it was available at two different lengths and in two different aspect ratios. They said here in America, it was an hour and seven minute cut at 1.78 to one. So if you're watching a 1.78 to one movie in pan, like in Academy ratio, you're not really losing much, but apparently in Germany, it was an hour and 35 minutes long and it had a 2.35 to one aspect ratio, which for me, obviously I, I don't know where that version is available, but how, how did you see it? I saw it on Amazon prime also. So so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if changing the aspect ratio and adding twenty minutes is gonna save this movie or turn it into anything good. But even, even beyond that, there are just things about it that are just baffling. But I get, but I guess we'll get into the the, the plot, which is um, there's this young gunfighter. He goes into town. Uh, and there's a brothel. This 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 lady's coming into town. The brothel's bringing her in. She thinks she's going to be an actress, and they're actually just going to turn her into a whore, which is actually based in reality. That was the thing that would happen. That would happen in Deadwood. That would happen in places. Uh, the 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 real life Al Swearingen would tell these girls, you know, from other states and big cities and stuff, come out to Deadwood. You'll be an actress. And then they were basically forced into a life of prostitution. So that's not actually – that's not just something that they cooked up. And like the whole town's in on the gag. is like the entire town's waiting for it to arrive. And if Cass hadn't been there to ride in a rescuer, you're basically looking at a town of like 500 people that's about to eat her alive. Like they're basically pulling her out of the state. I was like, this yeah. is actually like – like a Dawn of the Dead kind of thing. <laughs> granted, they want to like they want to molest her and tear her clothes off, but it's like it was actually kind of, that, for me. Actually, one the most one probably the most powerful scene of the movie is when she arrives and this whole town just descends upon her. Yeah, and so he he rescues her, takes her out to uh, the town of I I don't know if, I can't remember if it's Vinegaroon or Langtree in the movie, but he basically takes her to Judge Roy Bean's town. And they catch him and her cohabiting in a room without being married. So, Scandalous. Yeah, so Judge I know. So Judge Roy Bean uh, marries them on the spot. 
And then it's just a weird thing. He wants to be like a gunfighter. He wants to be a bounty hunter or he wants to get bad guys or something. He wants to kill Billy Pimple, this punk kid that he meets early in the movie. Yes, Billy Pimple with these really fake added on pimples. Now, it looks like, like a 70s made-for-TV movie, like the, the fake acting on his face, and uh, it makes it difficult to know whether or not we're supposed to take this movie seriously or not. Yeah, you see him, he's got these fake-ass pimples, and then you're like, oh, that was weird, why they do that? And then he goes into town, he's like, oh, that guy was Billy Pimple. And it's like, oh, Jesus, like, okay. So so anyway, they, they go, and then they, they're in love. They fall in love immediately just because they've been married uh, officially, legally, and then they kind of have this argument about, you know, he, how she needs to have a life. And and it's it's just like there's nothing that suggests why they don't just go their separate ways as it, you know, it doesn't, it, it's a very strange, like, it's, it's just weird that they immediately are like acting like a married couple. I don't, I don't get, I, I don't get the leap from where they're forced into marriage and then they have to act like they're married or in love it doesn't especially really make when a forced life. into marriage by this like toothless drunken halfwit yeah because <laughs> judge Roy bean is portrayed uh, as just the uh, like the crazy village idiot almost in this movie yeah the the wet brain solomon basically and uh so um so yeah so then anyway um uh she gets kidnapped by the james gang which I still don't understand why they kidnap her. I don't know what the point of that is to create a distraction where they're going to rob a bank, but I, I don't understand. It doesn't, I don't, I don't fully understand it anyway. But he, we do get Audie Murphy as Jesse James. Which I'm, I can't remember. Did we bring up this movie at all? Even in passing when we did our Jesse James episode? No, we, no, 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 we didn't. There's, two, we'll, there's just James movies, there's but, yeah. so many, but, yeah, but at least now we're, we're, we're filling in that hole that we, that we overlook. Yeah, and Audie Murphy's good. He's really good as Jesse James. It's great to see him in the movie. Yep. Um, yep. People people kind of disrespect Audie Murphy because he, as her, in terms of an actor, because he had that he had a face that almost never aged. He just he was like perpetually seventeen, so it was almost hard to, especially when movies would cast him as this kind of gee golly shucks sort of character. So and for people who don't know, Audie Murphy was a genuine World War II, like highly decorated like veteran and hero. That he the was, most decorated. Yeah, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. I mean, he was yeah. decorated for bravery. He was credited he, with killing over 240 German soldiers and capturing many more. So when he got back, he's, on, he's a 5'5 five, five little dude, but when he got back from World War II, they immediately signed him up for to, to be in pictures and he made, made a bunch of Westerns and war movies and that sort of thing. But yeah, so he might look like a little all shucks boy but he's a, a one of the most badass soldiers of the 20th century he basically held off hundreds of germans on a t uh, with a machine gun on a tank that was burning <laughs> that was primed to explode at any moment and when they actually made a movie about audie murphy's life which he was very hesitant to do they had to change it so that it wasn't as wild as the actual true story because they didn't think audiences would believe it. So Audie Murphy, but he was also a very – Audie Murphy's great, especially like in John Huston's The Unforgiven um, where he acts everyone else off the screen. Audrey Hepburn, um, Burt Lancaster, he's the best thing about The Unforgiven. Um, and when they give him a character that is shady or tortured, 
he really kills it. And because he was a guy who suffered from PTSD, he, he, it's really dark. Audie Murphy, um, Audie Murphy didn't just come back and think like he, he didn't take his status as a hero or his status as this German killer lightly. Um, there are just really dark stories about him from his, um, from his wife. So, so when he does get this uh, walk-on part, basically, uh, as Jesse James, he kills it. He's great. I don't. I don't. What's weird to me is that he's like he wants. He needs to make a movie, and he enlists Bud Vedeker, but then he's in one scene. Yeah, like, it's like a, why not? Why not play the lead and actually make it a proper Audie Murphy vehicle? Yeah, it's very it's very strange, but but he's good in it. He plays Jesse James uh historically not correct <laughs> at all uh jesse james was already dead by the time that roy bean was a justice of the peace i don't know what he's doing over there he calls bob ford his cousin so it's just there's a lot of problems if you know anything about history but uh he goes in and kind of gives this this young hotshot kid a lesson in what being a gunfighter is but then his gang kidnaps his girlfriend and um and they go, and so the, the the kid ends up stopping the gang, um, becomes a hero, and then Billy Pimple comes to challenge him. And it's mentioned earlier about his how his dad how he had these he's got these clammy hands or something. Yeah, he's really so, fast. He's really accurate, but he, he suffers from sweaty palms. Yeah. So when they do this Mexican standoff, which they literally throw, call out like a Tarantino movie. Um, and he pulls his guns and they slip out of his hands and it's like a slow motion scene. And it's almost uh, – not that I think that this is this movie's taking from uh, the Spaghetti Westerns, but it's almost exactly like the ending of The Great Silence. And you have this weird sort of movie where the first you know, hour of it is like almost like a – dumb sort of Roy Rogers-esque kind of B, like Western, like God. It's like, kind of a, a silly but fun yeah. and kind of wholesome story. And then it gets really dark all of a sudden, but bewilder yeah. bewilderingly so, like where it feels completely out of place in the context of the rest of the film. Yeah, so it's like if, it's like if you took some kind of shitty, like sort of uh, Gene, uh, Gene Autry uh, programmer and then put the ending of The Great Silence on it. And it's like, what... What is this movie? Yeah, because he, so, he gets shot in the shoulders after he, and I was like, all right, so he got injured and he's not going to be a gunfighter. And then with the entire town sitting there watching, the Zit kid rides off to get a rifle and then circles back, comes back, and just fucking murders him right there. And nobody intervenes to help or says shit. I was like, what the hell just happened? And then we see that this poor girl that was in love with him now, she actually is going to get sucked into the life of prostitution. And to make yeah. things even stranger, like the most innocent all-American, like cheerleading girl, the world's biggest smile, she gets off the stagecoach and walks in to start her life as a hooker. I was like, what the fuck is going on with this story? I just, I was just scratching my head. Like this is a genuine cultural oddity, and it makes sense that it hasn't ever really had like a wide release or is not widely known because I, I just don't know what about this movie. I guess apart from Audie Murphy playing Jesse James, it's hard to know how to sell this movie to really convince people to want to watch it. Well, and one of the things that's sad about it is this, this could have been, um, this could have actually been on our episode about Western swan songs, uh, in terms of Audie Murphy, yep. his last, last film and also Bud Bedeker. Uh, but by what an ignoble end. It just is like, 
the it's everything about it is just just everything is just incongruous like it opens with a rattlesnake getting its head blown off like it's a peck and paul movie and and then it just settles into this strange film and, and it's got this like funky sort of soundtrack and all the audio seems dubbed over it almost feels like a doris wishman like nudie like like early 60s nudie movie it almost of, it almost looks like or feels like it could be like a weird forgotten Russ Meyer movie at times. Yeah, like the Wild Gals of the Naked West or yeah. something, but with no nudity. Um, and then the, the 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 kid in it, he's got his weird haircut. Um, he almost it almost looks like they're trying to find an Audie Murphy sort of surrogate, and he's just dopey and he just acts he just acts dumb. He goes in this town, which is just the most like fake looking western town it's just all perfectly freshly painted well it looks like it they make almost, fun of in like uh blazing saddles or something like that yeah it almost feels like it's like uh it feels like some kind of like western kind of casino the like western themed casino in laughlin or something it just doesn't have any veneer of uh reality or authenticity and he rides in this town and and it's just like the staging is weird. It's just a whole town of people just looking up at horrors on a balcony and they're throwing at him, throwing stuff at him. And it's like, how long are these guys doing this? They're just, what are they doing? Like it, the, some of some, so much of it is just the, the choices that they make are, are so strange. And, uh, what do you think of other- the, uh, unique form of rock, paper, scissors that they play in this movie? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they do rock, paper, scissors, and then punch each other. Yeah, and if, you, if you lose the hand, you have to sit there and just let somebody punch you in the face as hard as they want. Yeah, very weird. Like, like, oh uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like something that would be an over the top or something. It's a very, but you know, to to talk about the things that are good about it, like Victor uh, Jory is good as Roy Bean. It's always a kind of a uh actors usually do a really good job they have fun with that role so that so that's cool um uh but man it's it's hard it's hard to find good things to say about the movie outside of just how curious it is in terms of how phony and old-fashioned and staged it feels yeah it's a misfire i think for Western historians who love Bedecker or who love Audie Murphy or just who just basically like there's some people like my, like my stepdad, he would watch any Western and it didn't matter if they're good Westerns or bad Westerns. He just loved Westerns and he would, he would, he would watch them 24 seven if given the opportunity. And if he happened to stumble upon a great one, so much the better, but he would just watch Westerns and with like the world's biggest smile on his face. And I feel like there's definitely like that kind of audience for it, but I would never make like the claim that like, people need to actively seek it out unless you are just a completionist where like I'm going to see every Western directed by Bud Bedeker because I love the renowned cycle so much. But I, this is, we're not on the level of ride lonesome. We're not on the level of tall T in any way, shape or form. No. And I kind of came into it. Like I, I'd read some kind of lukewarm or bad reviews and I was like, uh, I don't know. I, I love Bud Bedeker. I'm going to find something about this movie to, to love. And it it like exceeded my it exceeded it was far worse for far worse than I could have imagined and uh, and uh, you know it pays me to say because I love better and I love Audie Murphy but it's just a it's it's a very weird one just other just things like the kid takes his pants down and he's wearing he's wearing like modern briefs and obviously all the costumes and stuff that's maybe not important but 
I mean, do you think the guy's wearing like, you know, Fruit of the Loom briefs in the old West? Just as things, even things like that just stand out as to like, what, what are they, what did, what were every step of the, every turn, every scene, I go, what were they thinking? What were they doing? Well, it's I did have the privilege of seeing Bud Bedeker speak at the American Cinematheque, either summer 97 or summer 98. I can't remember which summer it was, but it was when the American Cinematheque was uh, rebuilding the Egyptian before they moved in there. And he introduced Ride Lonesome and spoke a little bit and he still had tons of energy and he, he kept having this expression about how old age was something that he, he was like, I just, I just don't believe in it. He would sadly be dead a, a few years later, but he was still talking movies and still totally engaged, totally fired up. But I know that from um, that box set of the Renown Cycle, he and his wife got really into these. I can't. I don't know the exact term. They're not like rodeo shows, but he and his wife would travel around like performing all these feats of horsemanship and things like that. They're just giant horse fanatics. So he lived a very happy, full life after his filmmaking career drew to a close. But it's just a shame that he didn't go out on a great one, but very few filmmakers who work for a long time and have a lot of movies to credit, very few of them do go out on a great one. It's, 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 it is the exception as opposed to the rule. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, the end showdown is is well done. It's got some slow motion squibs, which is interesting to see him doing that. Uh, the action sequence with the James gang is well done, too. It's not, you know, not everything about it is a wash. It's very, it's actually very similar to an action sequence in the Dalton movie he did had done with the uh, Audie Murphy earlier. So, um, you know, there, there is some, some quality (laughs) to see in the film, but yeah, it's, it's rough going unless you're a, this is a movie for diehard Western fanatics, but I would not recommend it as anybody's first Western if they've never seen one. (laughs) No, definitely not. This is a completist movie. Absolutely. Well, let's switch gears to a movie that I think is uh, beloved by a lot of Western fans, beloved by a lot of Paul Newman fans, and beloved by a lot of John Huston fans, and beloved by a lot of John Milius fans, although maybe perhaps not beloved by John Milius himself, but we got The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean from 1972, a movie that I saw early in my days of total cinephilia where I was like, I'm going to see any movie by John Huston because I just love him so much, but... John Huston's one of these guys where in the early 40s, he was one of the big writer-directors of movies like Maltese Falcon and obviously continued to do great stuff like Treasure of the Sierra Madre. But of all the great Golden Age directors who were really in their prime in the 40s, I feel like he transitioned into the 70s perhaps better than any of them, better than Billy Wilder, better than a lot of his peers. A lot of his peers weren't even making movies anymore. Like you see Howard Hawks and John Ford falling off by that point. I'm frankly blown away by how well John Huston was able to reinvent himself in the 70s with things like Fat City and the man and the man who would be king and I think it all boils down to he was always an avid reader and he was always an avid lover of uh, of great screenplays and great books and he could write himself and I think if you love adapting books or other people's screenplays it allows you to pivot and reinvent yourself and I think it's why he was able to remain creatively so relevant well into the 80s like Preetzi's Honor is really good and The Dead's really good and I love Under the Volcano I just think John Huston's one of the great adventurer filmmakers in movie history from his love of 
fox hunting and being master of the hounds in Ireland to big game hunting in Africa. He was just a, a drunken, crazy maniac. And who better to direct a movie about Joshua Bean than fucking John Huston? He says, I think he was perfectly cast as the director for his material, even if John Milius was hoping for a much rougher, darker, kind of war notes type vehicle when he originally conceived the story. Here's Sam Dodd, Judge. Genuine murder. Who'd he kill? Chinaman, his greaser wife. Stole the fruit jar full of money from him. How much? Close to $90. $90? That's a serious crime, son. Where's the evidence? We buried the victim. No more than an hour after he'd done it. Get out off that horse. I don't cotton to looking up to the likes of you. Hear ye, hear ye. Court of Vinegaroon is in session. There'll be no drinking. Judge Roy Bean presiding. Do you have anything to say before we find you guilty? I'm not guilty of nothing. There's no crime that I've done wrong. Do you deny the killing? I do not deny it. But there's no place in that book where it says nothing about killing a Chinese. And no one I know ever heard a law on, on, on greasers, nig-niggers, or engines. All men stand equal before the law. And I will hang a man for killing anyone, including chinks, greasers, or niggers. I'm very advanced in my views and outspoken. There's no place in that book that's... Trust in my judgment of the book. Besides, you're gonna hang no matter what it says in there, because I am the law. And law is the handmaiden of justice. Get a rope. Let's go, Sam, dog. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie. Um, I think it's a very flawed movie. It's almost flawed by design. Um... I get what John Milius is saying. He basically wrote it for himself. Um, and when you read the script, you can tell this is a guy who's just writing something for himself. Uh, I know I sent you I sent you it. I don't know if you have. I read uh, the first 20 pages, and I read like the last five or six. I wanted, basically wanted to get like a good taste for it, but I didn't have time to read it in its entirety. But I did want to just get a sense for his approach. And it's it was cool. He wrote it. And a completely different, like, I was a script reader at Phoenix Pictures for a long time, and I read more screenplays than I ever intended to. And most screenplays are written pretty poorly, and they have a pretty generic boilerplate kind of template that they use. I did like his use of past tense and voiceover narration to give you a sense of the action. It wasn't written like, oh, slam cut, like flash to white, blah, blah. There's, just a, there's a lot of shitty writing going on out there in the world of screenwriting. So I, yeah. I, I appreciated getting it exposed to his style, but um, I didn't, unfortunately, didn't have a, a, the, uh, the time to read it in its entirety. But obviously, much more rugged in tone than the kind of whimsical st- style of John Huston. Yeah, uh, yeah, and Milius always says when he writes a movie that takes place in the past, he does it past tense, and I, I, you can find it online very easily, but I would recommend anyone read his uh, script. I recommend anyone read his script for Jeremiah Johnson, because um, 
that one, I, I think that his script for Jeremiah Johnson is a masterpiece. I am not a huge fan of the movie. I think it's fine. Uh, I think it suffers from the tombstone problem where it just starts settling into montages instead of actually having a climax. Um, but I recommend anyone read it. And actually, if I can read just a little bit, just from the beginning of it. Oh, lay it on us. We'll get an idea. So, you know, he has this, he, you know, he has the fade in exterior prairie, whatever. But uh, he, this is how he writes it. It gives you an idea. Roy Bean crossed the Pecos River sometime in 1890, a man of 40 with a past. He was headed west as the sun does set, and he had the intention of roosting up in that territory. I believe he's wanted of horse and cow thievery in Tularosa County, and also the forceful abduction of an Indian woman. He was a convicted bank robber to boot and ran with the Baldy Mitchell gang. He rode into the setting sun, headed for hell. He had a handlebar mustache. It was much the same in appearance as those worn by villains that I saw in the Nickelodeon shows at Fort Davis. I do not intend to make any judgment on Roy Bean's character, but those men wore their lip hair in the manner for a purpose. All characters have their roots in truth. Roy Bean had his purpose too. Reader, think what you like. So that's how that's how he writes prose. And if you ever read a script, like it's never written like that. It's always he walks to his car. He turns the key. You know, it's all very direct. Well, I guess most know. screenwriters assume that they're not going to get a chance to direct it. And so adding a lot of style and personality is almost more trouble than it's worth because you know the director's not going to include any of it. Whereas if you read one of Quentin Tarantino's screenplays, he knows he's going to direct it. So he writes it specifically for himself. And it's almost like he's sitting down in front of you and making the pitch and telling you the story in his own words. But John Milius did get to work hand-in-hand with John Huston. And while John Milius might have been frustrated with John Huston's approach, I read something very kind written by John Huston where he said, The writer of the original script, John Milius, was there all the time. We'd work at night. He was a joy to work with and entered into new ideas with great enthusiasm. It turned out to be one of those pictures that we wrote as we went along. Um, and then he, uh, But then Milius had the flip side. He said... Uh, there were dark, evil sides to that man, as well as funny, charming sides. You saw that the evil was necessary at first, but that as time progressed, it was no longer needed. The whole thing was horribly mangled. So two different points of view, but John Huston seems to have had a, had a fine time working with him. But I also, since I mentioned Tarantino, Tarantino said repeatedly recently that John Milius is his all-time favorite screenwriter. But when he was accepting his award at the Golden Globes, he said, well, I'm going to uh, accept this in the honor of Robert Bolt, because Robert Bolt was John Milius' favorite writer, who obviously wrote like Lawrence of Arabia. So anyway, when it comes to a love of screenwriting, John Milius, Robert Bolt, Quentin Tarantino, they're all part of this giant family of, uh, of, uh, of filmmakers who love a particular style of writing. So I, I love John Milius as a writer. I love him as a filmmaker. I love Conan the Barbarian. I love Red Dawn. I love Big Wednesday. I think John Milius is a fucking legend. But the, it was just too yeah, early in I his mean, career for him to really throw his weight around. Yeah, I mean, uh, Apocalypse Now, obviously, you know, um, Dillinger. I love Dillinger. Dillinger's yeah. fun. Great, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, you know. Magnum I Force. Milius, I mean, he's got, he's got a I, ton of good shit. I see Milius's point. When I read the script, I see that. I, I, I see that maybe he was going to make things a little harsher. So like in the opening gunfight in the, uh, in, in the saloon, like 
there are like innocent prostitutes getting shot up. Like it's a peck and paw movie. He actually they just happened to get in the way. Yeah. Like that's one of the things yeah. I remember during the, the bad guys in Norbian are shooting at each other. And like one girl like tries to throw a knife, even though she's like on the side of the bad guys, but like, well, she's on our side, but she's also in the way. So they just unload on her. Yeah. And he uses the big fat prostitute as a shield, uh, in the script during, during the gunfight. So, so it, 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 it's a, it's harsher, and there are things about it that are different. It's a, maybe a little less cartoony, a little less surreal, but still captures that that humor. But I don't, I don't uh, blame Houston for getting the ideas that he got from the script because there are aspects of the script that are totally like ridiculous and silly, and so that Houston made a more whimsical version of it. It do, it doesn't uh, it doesn't surprise me because I feel that you could read it and kind of read it two ways. I, I think that Milius was almost Milius was doing almost like an Old Testament story uh, or a, or a myth, old myth, mythological story with you know his hum, his brand of humor, and I think that uh, Houston was doing more of a fairy tale or a tall tale. Yeah, you I know? mean the moment you hear what marmalade molasses and huh? yes. I mean you're like that all right, was- they're like this is that kind of movie where you get these kinds of songs sung yeah. by Andy Williams. Marmalade, molasses, and honey, cinnamon and sassafras tea. They make a morning finger lickin' and sunny, sweet as it can be. Pour it over me. Spike in the breeze, feel like the dilly of the days are coming. Peeking through the sycamore trees, you know what I'd love to do. Head for the hills, with you, maybe we'll climb. was a big uh that was a big point of contention uh and and yeah nothing's like that in the script the bear the bear on the swing and stuff like that and yeah I mean, we're like in almost like in butch cassidy in the sundance kid territory which paul newman obviously he does that style of filmmaking really really well but yeah that whole musical sequence it almost reminds me a bit of like with pat uh with um Ballad of Cable Hoag with Sam Peckinpah doing like, you know, um, Butterfly Morning where just for whatever reason in the early 70s, suddenly you got these kind of groovy folk, like romantic sequences and I, I, I don't mind them at all. Or like the, the acapella sequence and Butch Gansonin's Kid when it's just like it's stills yeah. and music. That just, those little sequences were very much in vogue at the time, but I kind of eat them up without, without any guilt or irony. I'm, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push back and say, I'm kind of with Milius on the marmalade molasses and honey. <laughs> uh, I'm not so into that. I think that kind of tips the scales. Uh, but, but uh, you know, but at the same time, I, I know where Milius is coming from. And also to go back to Tarantino, uh, 
the end music in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is from this movie. Absolutely. That, Ma- was it Maurice Jarre or Jarre? How do you say his, his name? I don't know how to say it either. Jarre, I'm glad that you don't either. So yeah. Jarre, I, he, Jarre. Marvelous composer who wrote a lot of cool scores. But yeah, but the very end of the movie. Or Arabia, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. but like at the very end of the movie, when you see Leonardo DiCaprio going up and meeting Sharon Tate, that is the life and times of Judge Orbean. So clearly this movie was on Tarantino's mind or brain as he was writing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he loves John Millies, he loves Westerns. And this Western, while it came out in 72, is part of that era that has been explored Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where the old-fashioned, square-jawed, kind of tab-hunter Westerns are being replaced by the long-haired, kind of weird, psychedelic hippie westerns. And I thought it was really cool just seeing Tab Hunter making an appearance in this as and probably my favorite scene of the entire movie. Oh, yeah. We'll get to that, we'll get to that in a second. But still hitting on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the opening coda of this movie is this is not the way it happened, but it's the way it should have or something yeah, yeah, to that yeah. It tells you right off none of this is true. And that – could almost be the you could almost put that at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too. Hundred percent, without a doubt. There's, yeah, there's sort of that thematic link of this is not this is not history, but this is what history should have been. You know, so you know, so that that's an interesting aspect. But yeah, Milius wrote this for himself. He was becoming a hot screenwriter, and he wanted to direct it. And um, he had actually sent it. He wrote it for Warren Oates, is what he claims. He wanted a Warren Oates sort of figure. And uh, you could see that he's kind of like he's doing a little riff. He's doing a, in his script. He's doing a little Peck and Paul riff. He's got a character named Tector, not a common name. Start the ball, uh, Tector. Yeah, the <laughs> horror's getting shot. Things like that. He's doing a. He's getting. He's getting a little bit of Leone in there. That kind of mythologizing, and then he's doing his own thing too. Um, so you 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 see that he maybe wants something a little more harsh, um, but still with his weird humor. Um, but um, they didn't. The studio just didn't. They didn't. He said actually he sent it to Lee Marvin, uh, and Lee Marvin was making pocket money at that time. And Paul <laughs> had, I had, love this story. had read the script and was like fell in love with it. So yeah, apparently wanted- Lee Marvin was so shit faced that he couldn't bother to read it. And Paul yes. was like, "Your loss is my gain," and he just picked it up yeah. and read it. And so who knows? That could be total. Hollywood myth making and legend, but I just love the idea of Lee Marvin being just so fucked up that he couldn't sounds, bother to read the submission. It sounds true, and if that's not the way it happened, it it's should have should have happened exactly. So, um, so then uh, you know, so so Paul Newman, I think he kind of gets it fast tracked, and and uh, Milius had wanted to direct it, and they were like, the studio was like, no, you've never directed anything, so we don't really trust you, and they wanted a more sure hand. So they bought the script for a record number, three hundred thousand dollars in in the early seventies, which would be a lot today. Like, I mean, yeah, so a, a, a so, young screenwriter with no credits would be delighted to get three hundred thousand dollars for a fucking script. And yeah, so then you know, so Milius was not happy with the casting of Paul Newman. He he called him a cutesy actor, and. You know, fair enough that you can see a different version of this movie with Warren Oates and it's maybe better. I don't know. But um, I think Paul Newman's great in this movie. It's also one of his favorite roles personally that he ever played. And I I agree. I think Paul Newman, while he doesn't necessarily completely embrace the dark side, I think perhaps if if this movie had embraced the entire dark side, maybe it would have become one of those strange, just kind of forgotten 
dirty, ugly, nasty wedding. What, like, what, like, what was it like? Dirty little Billy that the Western we talked about during the Billy the Kid one. Yeah, yeah. yeah it might it might have become one of those kind of forgotten movies. The fact that you Paul Newman bringing some personal charm, I think it helps the medicine go down a lot of ways. And watching him interact with the bear and growling and the bear eating cigars out of his mouth, you can say, oh my God, this is like a fucking Disney movie. Or you can say it's just, it's lighthearted in tone. And I find those scenes hysterical, but I get if you want your movies to be rough, mean, and nasty with a lot of like rough edges... Life in Times of Judge Rubin is not going to be that. It's it it is a fairy tale, but it's one that makes me laugh like hell while watching it. But the thing is, like, but but Milius does things that are that are in the script that are that are silly. He has his, you know, the original Bad Bob, which has to be a reference to True Grit, the original Greaser Bob. But uh, not Dirty he, Bad Bob from Mexico. This is the original Bad yeah. Bob, the albino Bad Bob. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, he has him, he has him, you know, shooting a horse to cook it. And he has him eating raw onions and drinking scalding water, like boiling water. So it's like he's still doing wacky things. So it's like, to me, I couldn't, I can't fault John Houston for taking it that way. You know what I mean? Like you can, I, 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 you can read the script in two different ways. And I think that. Milius maybe had such a clear vision of what he wanted to do, but I don't know if that comes fully. You're definitely reading the work of an auteur, but I don't know if it comes fully in the script um, just on its own. I I can see how it could be. We have all this great dialogue when it's like, you call that justice? Like, justice is the handmaid in the law. And like, you said law is the handmaid in the justice. Works both ways. Like, that, I mean, that's clearly Uh, being written for laughs. Yes. So. So, you know, uh, I would love to see the Milius version, but also there are issues with the script. I, I, I love the script, but so, for example, like, you know, you could see that Houston was a writer, you know, and starting with Law and & Order. And actually, I've read, which I don't know if it's true, this movie was uh, one of the early titles was going to be Law & Order, which is funny because this movie does share scenes with Law & Order that the weird hanging, the guy shooting up the saloon and getting killed for bothering people. Um, what, what, there's, a, there's a few other scenes that it, it, it shares with, with Law & Order. I keep coming back to that movie because I want yeah, that people was, to Yeah, that was John Houston's third writing gig, uh, 1932. But. Oh, 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 yeah. And then also a guy writing on a wanted poster, like drawing a mustache or something. And the actual script is very weird. Roy Bean comes into the saloon, sees his wanted poster, and one of the things he's wanted for is rape. And he underlines it <laughs> like emphasizes that he raped someone which isn't in the movie but just also i don't know what milius i don't know what Milius, what point milius was making there but it's yeah, one of the weird you know shows. young writers sometimes are working out their demons and they have to do shocking things just to get it out of their system so you might it might be a, a small case of that yeah yeah exactly so so yeah but houston does lean into some of the comedy when he goes in the saloon they they in the script they, they beat him but they don't like literally – they beat him and rob him, but they don't literally turn him upside down and shake the coins out of his pockets. Yeah, <laughs> stuff, stuff like that that does become a little cartoony. Um, but uh, just I mean, also – like, like the scene with Bad Bobby mentioned, like when he gets shot, 
it, this is almost like Tex Avery territory where you have like the big hole in them. Like it, it feels a lot of ways like a, like a Warner Brothers cartoon, which I lean into and embrace. But once again, if you're the screenwriter, you're probably just in like, you know, chewing on your cigar and twisting your hands in anguish. Like, no, what the fuck? But uh, yeah. I, I just, I, I completely, totally, if you get on board with the tone in like the first 20 minutes, the rest of the movie is just uh, a, a great roller coaster ride. Yeah, you know, and yeah, especially if you're the screenwriter that's obsessed with guns and you're, you wouldn't blow a hole in someone like that or whatever, but that almost, that scene alone, like, seems like it was, like, the inspiration for The Quick and the Dead, the whole, <laughs> the whole energy behind that movie of literally blowing holes in people. Um, uh, in the script, the, the original Bad Bob is not an albino. Um they he does uh he does do a lot of the cartoony things he has a child's skull on his saddle and when you watch the movie he has a skull when i rewatched it after reading the script again i i noticed that he had a skull on his saddle so that was they they bring over a lot of his details but he's not an albino so that was a houston touch which is interesting because then like later in cold mountain they bring in like an albino dude who looks a lot like the character it's a it's a one more surreal aspect of the movie, but um, you know, so you know, I get I get where it's coming from, but like the, him getting that hole blown in blown in him the first time you see it, you just it's insane. You're just like <laughs> like like you. It's one of those things where it's like, did I just see that? Did that just yeah? Because it like lingers and zooms in. <laughs> like, yeah, it's not trying to shot. It's very placing the emphasis of the entire film on that particular moment. And, well, and, and and so and Houston brings a lot of these things where he takes the gags that are from the script, and it's like he's he's like he's like saying to Millie, it's like I see your hand and and I raise you this much. So he adds these touches. So so for example, with the with the um, guy who gets hanged for killing a Chinaman, one of my favorite scenes. Um, it's obviously clearly a play on what really happened, but in the opposite sense, because in real life, judge Roy Bean let the, let the guy go for killing a Chinaman. <laughs> and in this movie, Roy Bean's argument in real life is put into the, the guy, the, the murderer's mouth, uh, played by tab Hunter. Um, but I love how, like when he talks about how I'll hang a man for killing anyone, including blank, 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 basically all words that would get me thrown off the internet. He says, I'm very advanced in my views and outspoken. Like that for yeah, me is yeah. hysterical. Yes. When he says, I'm and very advanced in my views like that. I just, it makes me yeah. fall out of my couch. Yeah. That's directly from the, from the Millie of script and that scene's great. And then the, his voice, tab hunters voiceover, like, well, it wasn't right that they hung me for that, but I'd killed white men for their horses before too so i just imagine i was being hung for that i just hope they did it right and then he gets hanged and he's like they did and it's this weird freeze frame where they just show fireworks and you're like what the fuck is this it's played so perfectly and the fireworks is not in the script but it's just like uh, houston finds a tone that is just well it's great. peculiar also having so many voiceover narrators like a lot there are plenty of movies out there with voiceover narration but almost always you stick with one for the whole movie. Yeah. But with this movie, different voiceover narrators drift in and out of the story, whether it's Anthony Perkins or Ned Beatty or whomever. And it just works. It's like when you're reading a novel, how sometimes you have different point of view characters. Well, same with uh, life and times of Judge Roy Bean. Oh yeah. And I love that. I love the, I love the Anthony Perkins. Cause that's, I think the first time voiceover is in the movie and you're just watching him ride like a so close of his face with his voiceover. And it's such a, like a, dynamic weird way of doing things that i you know in uh, in all the westerns before this that i've seen doesn't 
there's really uh, there's I don't I've never seen that in a Western at least that sort of thing. And also just a- after his scene ends, uh, when he says, you know, well, you know, I died of dysentery in Mexico a few years later and I never saw Bean again. So I imagine he's in hell. Like, it's just, <laughs> like, like so you're not only getting voiceover from this character just out of nowhere, you're getting voiceover from the grave. Yeah. From the afterlife. You know, after the fact. And so it's like, and that's all in the script. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, how could you blame John Huston for going like, oh, this is just a kind of silly, whimsical movie? You and, know what I mean? Yeah, I mean? Just like little things. Like there's a photo montage of a lot of the various people that got uh, kind of, um, I guess, oh. sentenced to whatever th- crime. But at one point you see a guy holding his hands up and he's on his knees next to a sheep. Like it's implied he's being arrested for fucking a sheep. Like all this stuff is played for laughs. And apparently on the set, it was just bananas like there's this great anecdote by uh billy pearson which is featured in the book ava gardner love is nothing by lee server and i I gotta read this brief passage from it but it says playing the part of the station master who uh, leads lily langtree from the train was billy pearson former jockey and art smuggler whose real job was to keep the director amused as the much rehearsed and elaborate shot started pearson stepped up to ava doffed his station master's cap and with his back to the camera said welcome miss langtree and on behalf of the entire railroad let me just say i would be honored if you would let me eat your pussy and apparently he continued in this vein or worse as they played out the entire lengthy shot but ava refused to react only remaining perfectly in character to the end at which point everybody exploded with laughter john houston with tears in his eyes it would mean an hour on the clock before anybody could work again. Like, if you're playing these kinds of gags and p- potentially ruining takes and so on and so forth, clearly the entire movie was made like with like a very jovial kind of festive uh, uh, vibe on the set. Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah, and that's kind of the spirit. You feel like that would be the spirit. I, I would, uh, like I said, I would want to see what Milius had in mind. Because their script is definitely harsher, but it still has these like flights of fancy, these weird things that he does that uh, I don't know how a filmmaker would rein that tone in. So maybe it had to be directed by him to have the perfect version of it. I mean, uh, I love the movie. I think that it, to an extent, peters out after a certain point. I think I think like the first hour of it, I love. Like for me, the weakest part is the I love and adore the Jacqueline Bissett stuff. Yeah. Doesn't quite play for me. That entire sequence when he like catches the torch and then like burns, like, t- goes to war with the town. I wouldn't have minded if that entire sequence were removed because I just don't think it measures up to the rest. But I guess the movie needed an ending of some kind. But I, I-, I like the Lily Langtree ending far more than the actual like shootout. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's one of the differences in the uh, in the script is that so. And, but and I can see why they did it because in the script, like the Roddy McDowell lawyer character, he gets rich off of like oil and just dies off screen. He just doesn't become the main villain. And uh, Bean, he leaves the town, uh, you know, after he tries to lynch uh, the drunk doctor who couldn't save his uh, his uh, fiance. Um, so, but in but but it, so in the movie, it's sort of like Roddy McDowell comes in, and then you find out that his deputies had voted against him, and then you see, and so Bean leaves. Like these deputies voted for Roddy McDowell to be the mayor because their wives forced them to, and so Bean leaves, 
And then uh, the deputies get left by their wives and then, you know, they're they're all destitute and and Bean comes back and gathers them up for like one last hurrah. Now, in the, in the script, the, yeah, it's almost like de- Arthur, like in the Thurian legends, getting his knights of the round table together like one last time. Yeah. And, and, and actually in the script, when they try to lynch, when he tries to lynch the doctor, his deputies stop him and they're the ones that kick him out of town. And the lawyers involved, but they're the ones that are like, you need to get out of here. If you come back, we're going to kill you. You've outlasted your time. Um, and then when Bean comes back, he never reveals that he's Judge Roy Bean to his daughter. And it's funny because his daughter is like has the spirit of uh, Bean, but she's like a pro-union, Bolshevik, sort of liberal. So that you're getting, so you're getting that kind of milius thing, but but it but his script actually you know kind of likes that about her i guess but um what happens when the oil you know industry comes in there's like a italian sort of oil oilman slash gangster who is named fat willie and uh he kidnaps bean's daughter because she's like protesting against him and all that and forces her to do like a burlesque dance or something. And then Bean goes in to uh, rescue her. And then there's a, basically a big massacre, very similar to the opening shootout in the uh, in the bar. And then uh, Bean kills him, but gets shot as he's doing it. It's a very peck and paw sort of scene. Lots of whores get shot, you know, in the crossfire again. Um, and so. I, you know, I get why Houston was like, well, that's weird to just introduce a villain, you know, in the last, you know, 10 minutes of the movie or last 15 minutes. Having said that, I feel that the way it plays out in the movie is still somewhat unsatisfying. Yeah, it's, it's the like, softest, softest part of the movie by far. Yeah, it's like a stunt. It feels like a stunt show. They're just guys are just jumping and explosions are way far away from them and they're just flipping and stuff. It doesn't it just doesn't uh, it doesn't fully come together. But I, I feel that's almost the nature of the script. It's it's so episodic that yeah, you're, you're getting little chapters and little vignettes and so on and so forth. And I guess for me, like the screenplay is at its best, not in terms of structure, but just in some of the goddamn dialogue, like when <laughs> some of the women that started out as prostitutes and got married off to all the, the deputies, like whether they liked it or not, when they get, when they take umbrage with the fact that he called them whores at one point and his marshal and his marshals make him apologize. And he says, I understand you have taken exception from my call on your whores. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, I ask you to note that uh, that I did not call you callous-ass trumpets, <sighs> fornicatresses, or low-born gutter sluts. But I did say whores. No escaping that. And for that slip of the tongue, I apologize. I mean, that is just so goddamn funny and because and paul newman is so charming he really sells these lines like i don't know if war notes would have necessarily been able to deliver those lines in this in the same fashion paul newman just brings different qualities to a to a part and that scene is actually not even in milius's script so i don't know if that was a thing that they collaborated on or just a houston invention but that is actually not in the script 
but I but I think that is but I I, I feel that like uh, Milius is just writing to entertain himself, and Houston is trying to shape it into more of a narrative, despite the episodic structure. Um, and 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 that's also with the casting of Paul Newman is. Roy Bean was a considered a handsome man, and Roy Bean was a sweet talker, and Roy Bean could convince people of things. I mean, look at his whole life. He, you know, so you know, uh, as much as I'd love to see Warren Oates, uh, and of course I want to see Warren Oates over. I mean, I love Paul Newman, but I want to see Warren Oates over Paul Newman any day. But but Paul the good Newman- news is with Warren Oates at this time, we have so many good things like Cockfighter or Tulane Blacktop or whatever the case may be like, or uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Like Warren Oates got so many of his best roles right around this time that I feel like the good news is we get both. We get Paul Newman in this, but we also get Warren Oates just chewing the scenery and a bunch of other flicks. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, too, is like uh, Houston additions. Houston, like I said, it's like Houston is topping Milius. So in that bar shootout, for example, at the beginning, which I love, I think it's staged like wonderfully. It's just these kind of these long shots of unbroken takes of him just shooting these guys up in this bar. Like, But there's that close-up where the guy shoots his dick off <laughs> in the foreground and that's not in the script. That's a Houston edition and, and that type of stuff. When I first saw this movie, I was like, oh, my God, what the fuck? Like, like it's just it's just wild. It's that type of stuff that you don't actually ever see in a Western. And obviously, this movie is a surreal take on things. But but, yeah, you want to see that where, you know, because that is the reality. A guy putting his gun in his pants and trying to pull it out, he would shoot his dick off. I mean, I'm sure that happened all the time. Yeah, it's uh, something I wince in every single Western when I see somebody shoving a gun into their belt. I'm like, dude, put it in a goddamn holster on your hip. Like, but, <laughs> aim it at the goddamn ground. You're aiming it right at your junk. But that is the truth, though. They, they, they oftentimes didn't have gun belts, and you weren't allowed to carry guns in town. So oftentimes they just tucked it into their pants. And, uh, you know, Wyatt Earp... He never got shot in a in a gunfight. Uh, never had any injuries, but he at one point um, had a, had his gun, um, and he had it. He had it. The, the the Colt, like if you just push that hammer on the primer, um, it would just go off. And so he dropped his gun, and it sh- it shot in his boot. I don't think it actually hit him. But from then on, it, you know, he always only carried five rounds. You know, he never wanted to Leave have that it. first chamber empty without a doubt. Yeah. So, you know, the, that that is a thing. And you do hear about gunfighters shooting themselves in the leg or doing all that stuff. So I always like that scene where the guy shoots himself in the dick. I didn't expect it. You know, Yeah, I mean, this movie's got so much great humor. Now, I get, uh, just what, one great little throwaway line at one point says, the only lynching around here will be done according to the law. Like it's almost like a Yogi Berra line where it's like when you come to a fork in the road, take it like the idea of it being a lynching means that it's against the law with <laughs> the fact that he's yeah. like the only lynching around here will be done according to the law. It just, that sense of irony that the, the gallows humor it's in every single frame of this. So I, like I said, I, I, I've got a lot of love and affection for John Houston. There are times if I've got enough booze in me where I'll say he's on my Mount Rushmore cause he's just got so many movies that I have the, the utmost respect for. And also just his career as an actor, whether you're talking about Chinatown or the Hobbit or whatever, he's just such a fascinating character. And he's obviously he's got a lot of kids who are very talented and his father's very talented, but John Houston is just one of those for me. He is one of the great personas of the movies. And the fact that he was able to deliver so many good movies as a director across four and a half decades 
it's very rare to find those directors. Like, I mean, Buñuel is one of those guys, and you could say like Werner Herzog's one of those guys, but there are not many who have been able to sustain brilliant work over an extended period of time. So yeah, here we are, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, 31 years after Maltese Falcon, and he's still just killing it. Yeah, and, and, and uh, in a way, he, he did so many different kinds of movies, but... Uh, I guess as contrast to William Wyler, you do see his signature. You know, you do see the things that he likes. What's you know? crazy you is that just... you can make a case for John Huston's best work of his career being the 1970s. Like with the 40s, you've got Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Maltese Falcon. That's a really good decade. In the 50s, you got Asphalt Jungle and African Queen and Moby Dick. But if you look at the 70s, I mean, it starts with Criminal Letter, then you've got Fat City, Life and Times of George Robin, Macintosh Man, Man Who Would Be King, Wise Blood. I mean, that's a really strong output for any director in any decade, especially one who's like got emphysema and all these health problems. And he, he just, he, he was being held together by like, you know, duct tape at this point, but he was still cranking out some of my all time. I mean, Man Who Would Be King might be my favorite quote unquote adventure movie ever made i don't know what genre it falls into but adventure movie seems like the perfect way to describe it but yeah three years after uh judge roy bean he's got the man who would be king i just would never ceases to blow my mind yeah no yeah no he he's definitely he's definitely one of the greats and so this one i i love this movie i recommend it like i said i feel that the first hour is far superior to the second hour um uh, even though that has good stuff in it, but it's like um, it's almost like the movie is like, oh, we gotta tell a story. We actually we have to remember to tell the story. Yeah, we can't just have fun on the set. Well, was it a missed opportunity? <laughs> the fact that you have a movie at this time that has both Ned Beatty as well as Bill McKinney in it that they yes. didn't that they didn't reenact their scene from Deliver or does Deliverance come the year after? What, what, what's the what's the order of operations in terms of uh, the release? Oh, I don't know. I, I think it's. I think they're kind of floating around the same time, see. right? Yes, they, they both come out in 72. I don't know which got shot first, but the man who rapes Ned Betty and Deliverance said squeal like a pig is <laughs> like his buddy. I'd, li- I'd like to imagine they were on, they were on the Roy Bean set and uh, he'd gotten a script for Deliverance and said, you know what? I think you're going to be the guy that's going to rape me. <laughs> <laughs> It's like we, we got a, we got a nice rapport. I'd like to be yeah. the guy says, hey, what, yeah. "What we require of you is to get your ass up in the woods." I mean, yeah, I mean, Bill McKenney, goddamn, he's so fucking scary in that movie. But I just love the fact uh, that here they are. So, yeah, it's incredible. Same year, uh, side by side, but obviously very different relationship in this compared to Deliverance. Yeah, and then shout out also to Matt Clark as, as one of the deputies, Steve Canali, who would be in. Uh, uh, Milius is Dillinger, and apparently this is the movie that inspired Milius to start directing, so that he could control uh, stuff. But clearly, there were there were things about it that he liked. What if the actor who plays uh, Bell and Pat and Billy the Kid? What what role does he play in this? I can't remember his name. He's one of the he's one of the deputies. That's yeah. Matt Clark. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, he's fantastic. And also, you have uh, Richard Farnsworth in here, and uh, you got you got a oh, one of the stunts. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then also, that's one other thing. A guy named Neil Summers. He's the one who is shooting up the bar and, you know, saying I'd make love to a mountain lion or something. Shoots a little entry in the boob and gets shot dead. Yes. And he's, he is a, uh, he's a well-known stuntman and he actually appears in uh, a time for dying 
very briefly in Jesse James gang. So gotcha. uh, well, I love when Ned Beatty's telling that story to, to Ava Gardner and she's like, well, what, what did the judge? He's like, judge shot him dead, dead. But yeah, Ned Beatty's just got such a perfect delivery yeah. style for these kinds of movies. Yeah. And actually Ned Beatty does play judge Roy Bean in, uh, Streets of Laredo, which was a sequel to uh, Lonesome Dove. Yeah, like for people don't know, Larry McMurtry wrote four books with Gus and Call. Obviously, Lonesome Dove was first, followed by Streets of Laredo. Sequentially, that they're three and four, but they were published as one and two. But Streets of Laredo was originally going to be a movie about these characters with John Wayne and Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart. The movie ended up getting scrapped. It was going to be a Peter Bogdanovich movie. And then it got repurposed into Lonesome Dove, which is one of the most entertaining novels of the 20th century. I, I can't get enough of it. I don't think Streets of Laredo is quite on that level. But So I never saw the show Streets of Laredo, but I did read the book. I went through a phase where I was just all up the butt of that quartet of books. I just absolutely adored it. But I'm embarrassed to admit, I barely remember the scene where Judge Roy Bean appears in the book. I think when I was reading it, he shows up and I was like, whoa, that's Judge Roy Bean. And then I, but I was just so focused on the story of Call and P.I. in that story that I just, uh, I, I can't really remember in what context Judge Roy Bean appears in that story. Yeah, he's kind of living around the Mexican lady with her son who's like a, a guero or a huero, huero, I think that's the correct enunciation, but he's the... Uh, He's the blonde Mexican kid. And um, also another diversion from history is, yeah, the, the, he ends up killing the Roy Bean character. He ends up shooting him and hanging him, which didn't happen. All these movies always want to kind of give like a – outside of A Time for Dying of all of all films, uh, they always want to kind of give Roy Bean a uh, – An epic send-off. Yeah, an epic <laughs> send-off, which he didn't have. He just got drunk and went to bed, which which I like. Um, and then also there's a, I think it's on Amazon Prime, but the quality is so poor, um, is the TV show, uh, Judge Roy Bean, where uh, Edgar Buchanan um, from, you know, Ride the High Country and many other Westerns plays Roy Bean. And in that, he's more of a, he's more of a good guy solving cases and stopping bad guys or whatever. So um, if people want to, if they can't get their fill of Roy Bean, that might be something to check out, but the quality is so poor right now. Gotcha. So. Well, as always, it's a pleasure. It's a hoot and a half talking Westerns with you. And I feel like it's kind of an inexhaustible topic. Like we had a, uh, a, a lot of back and forth when we were debating what, what, what the next episodes could be. Like, cause we could like, not settle on it. <laughs> well, what I think uh, what we should do is maybe mention out loud some of the concepts in case people want to weigh in. But some of the big ones we've debated is um, like Sam Peckinpah knockoffs or ripoffs or imitation Sam Peckinpah films in the seventies. That's a, a, a recurring one. I've, I've brought up Anthony Mann a few times. Uh, Singing Cowboys is one that I'm into. Um, we really haven't gone into any spaghetti westerns. I had a big one that I did with Tony Stella years ago, which I love. Where I think we tackled five or six. I'd have to just double check which ones we tackled. Uh, that, but I feel like there are a lot of great spaghetti westerns out there that we could still dip our toes into. So there's a a shitload of oh no, another big one we could easily just if we wanted to do a small one, just the westerns of Howard Hawks. I think he only made four total. Two of which are some of my all-time favorite movies, period, irrespective of genre. So there's a ton of potential topics down the road when it comes to the Western genre. And so I'm always down to talk Westerns anytime. Have you ever done a deep dive into the Wild Bunch? I mean, we have brought it up periodically in passing on the in a few of our episodes. I'm, a, I'm ashamed to admit, neither on my, ch- my YouTube channel nor 
on uh, the wrong reel. Have we ever just done like the Wild Bunch episode? I feel like that movie's so big and so giant, so complex. It probably deserves an episode entirely to itself because there's so much that goes into the making of the film itself. We could have just some point to say, fuck it. We're just going to devote two hours to discuss nothing but the Wild Bunch and just, and, I, just, and do, do our due diligence. I'm kind of leaning towards like a twofer, like a, like a Wild Bunch episode. And then the Peck and Paw knockoffs that come in the wake of it. Gotcha. No, that would be. T- it's like when Pulp Fiction came out. It, there was like a wave of Tarantino knockoffs that came afterwards. And so same thing with Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch had such a ripple effect and had such a giant wake behind it that it changed the industry forever. So yeah, I mean that's kind of where I'm leaning. Uh, a Wild Bill Hickok episode would be cool, even though he doesn't have any real masterpieces dedicated to him. He's got Deadwood, uh, which is really solid. I- yeah, I was going to outside of the first few episodes of Deadwood, um, but that still might be an interesting, interesting thing to to go over because he's one of the big old West figures. Um, and then, you know, Australian Westerns. And so that, that might be an interesting thing to tackle. There's some really solid ones there. Absolutely. Uh, well, if anybody listening to this episode who's a, just considers themselves a Western buff has any ideas on this front as well, we, we welcome any suggestions. But I, it's like... Of all the genres out there, the Western, you know, it's definitely, the, the, while there are some masterpieces from the 20th century, 21st century, it's obviously, it's, it's like jazz. It's a creature of the 20th century. And as time goes by, I think more and more dirt and ash will kind of pash, pile up on it. And for young film enthusiasts out there who are like in their late teens, early 20s, who are just getting into movies, I just want to make sure there's some resources out there that'll help guide them through uh, the, the history of the Western genre because there's just so much cool shit to explore. And obviously, we always... I mean, we talked about John Ford when we mentioned, uh, when we discussed My Darling Clementine with the Wyatt Earp episode. At some point, we could just say, fuck it, we're going to do the John Ford Westerns. <laughs> it would, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's such a big topic. We almost are kind of like tap dancing around it. But between The Searchers and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valens and Ford Apache and Stagecoach, I mean, there's so many good ones. Or even like some of the lesser known ones like Wagon Master and Rio Grande or uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. I mean, that's that's an enormous topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that would – yeah, that would be a – That'd be at least a two-parter. That'd be but, an eight-hour. Yeah. That'd be an eight-hour podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I would. I would be into that. The research would be fun. But uh, yeah, I'm. I think I'm leaning towards like a Wild Bunch episode. There, there's been a new book, and I haven't read it yet, about the making of the Wild Bunch that is supposedly really great by a guy named I think uh, Kip Stratton. So uh, I, I would love to just dive into that and see if there's stories or anecdotes about the making that I that I am not already aware of. And then just well, talking about the quality of the film itself, I think, could be an entire I mean, episode. For me, it would be a pleasure just because I'm always changing my mind of what my favorite movie is. But depending upon what my mood is, oftentimes I will just – because people always say, oh, you like movies a lot. Like you have the YouTube channel, the podcast. What's your favorite movie? And sometimes I'll just, for the sake of convenience, say, oh, The Wild Bunch. And they're like, oh, a Western? I'm like, yeah, it's The Fucking Wild Bunch. Like, it, it's, for me, it's as, it's as large and as important to film history as – Taxi Driver or Citizen Kane or Vertigo or any like it's one of the founding like foundational stones upon which the history of film rests and at this point now it's a a 51 year old movie and while it might seem to me like so obvious that it's such a complete and total utter masterpiece we have to remember there are people out there who are just getting in the movies and like when I was 18 or 19 I saw it for the first time with my dad 
we need to kind of guide the next generation of youngins into the the world of Wabunch so that it'll that'll last another fifty years and people will keep talking about it. Yeah, exactly. It's a demarcation point in terms of this is uh, uh, the a pre Wild Bunch Western. And this is a post Wild Bunch Western, and and it's you know I mean I, I know there are a lot of things going on, but it's rare to find a movie that essentially kills a genre, <laughs> carves <laughs> Which, a gravestone, in, in the best possible way. Like if they had never made a yeah. Western after it, be like, all right, this movie says all you need to say with the <laughs> with the Western. Everyone, after it, everyone had to find a different way. I think after yeah. the Wild Bunch, and so um, so yeah, it's including Peckham by himself. Yeah, exactly. And so Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid is my favorite Western, favorite movie, but uh, I think The Wild Bunch is the best Western. It's uh, If that makes any sense, I think I, The Wild Bunch is It makes the perfect best. sense, whereas like, there's a difference between personal taste and a movie that has kind of defines a genre. Like, in terms of historical importance, The Wild Bunch can't be understated, whereas Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid is more just like, oh, you've seen The Wild Bunch – 10 times and you've kind of like exhausted some of his possibilities. Now it's time to go all in the world of Peckinpah. I feel like Pat Barry and Pilly the Kid is like the perfect Peckinpah film, whereas The Wild Bunch is the perfect Western, if that makes any sense. Uh, yes, yeah. I, no, I, that makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense. So. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this sucker up. Where can people find you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. if they want to see your art, hear your music, etc.? Well, there's no place to hear the music. Uh, it's not been posted because it's not quite finished yet. Um, but well, We're going to uh, change that because I'm going to include one of your tunes at the opening of the episode, if you will allow me to do so. Yeah, okay, yes, you're allowed. Um, it's actually, actually, the unfinished songs have been included in, like, there was a Blu-ray release of The Grand Duel, the Lee Van Cleef movie, and uh, it's some of the music has been included in the special features of that, and it's been included other places, so cool. you can... You can throw some of that in there. You know, um, so you but, just mentioned Lee Van Cleef. We could just do like a Lee Van Cleef episode at some point because he's oh, got what? so many cool ones. Go and it's like from like old school Hollywood to spaghetti westerns. To like he's like he's all over the place, and it's like you could just you could do well just with Lee Van Cleef. We'd have to do chapters, and actually, I might I might be um, deficient. I have a friend who wrote a uh, Lee Van Cleef biography. Oh, very cool. So, uh, he might, but I don't know if he does podcasts very much. He directed a film called, his name is Mike Malloy. He directed a film called Eurocrime, all about Eurocrime movies. That's very, it's worth seeking out. Great I document. have heard about this guy and I think Bill Tech at one point recommended that I try and recruit him on the show because he was talking about that documentary uh if, if if it's the same one but it's all about those like like it's like, an, like the early 70s italian crime films yes yeah very like dirty hairy french connection serpico kind of riffs uh and and also kind of the thing that kind of uh became in the wake of the death of the spaghetti western these are the movies that kind of took over so, uh, but I don't know, you know, I, I, I'll try to convince him some, he does, he's done some podcasts, but you know, he, he can be a fickle man, but he wrote a biography on Lee Van Cleef and I believe a biography on Warren Oates too. Or so. at some point we could just say, all right, well, if he doesn't want to make an appearance, just do an episode talking about his work. Like I, I, I'm totally fine <laughs> just doing an episode talking about the documentary Eurocrime, which came out in 2012. Yeah. yeah, It's the same movie I was thinking of. It's called Eurocrime, the Italian cop and gangster films that ruled the seventies. And it's a very cool documentary. So we could just do an episode celebrating his work, which I, I which would be totally up my alley. 
Absolutely exhaustive. Some of my artwork is on the DVD uh, uh, menus, I think. Um, well worth checking out. But uh, um, I got lost. What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, just where to find yourself, social media, etc. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm three tall cans deep now. So. <laughs> um, so, uh, David Lambert Art, you should be able to find me on uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter under that. David Lambert Art, just all one word. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Beautiful. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out The Westerner and The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And if you're just a diehard buff of this topic, then you've obviously got uh, – You've got a time for dying as well, but we hope you enjoyed this episode. Definitely let us know on Facebook or Twitter any ideas and suggestions you have for Westerns because it's one of those things where I never get tired of it, so I'm happy to do a fucking thousand episodes about Westerns. I've got the podcast. I can do it about whatever the hell I want, so why not (laughs) talk about movies that I'm interested in? So once again, happy to take requests on that front, but if you want more content, you can always find my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. I'm knocking at the door of 20,000 subscribers, so would love a little help pushing me up and over that, uh, that threshold. But remember to leave a rating review on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. And hope everyone has, uh, you know, I don't know. Well, I was about to say, I hope everyone has a great weekend. It's weekend for me. I don't know when you're listening to this episode. So it doesn't really matter. But thanks so much for listening. Greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.